Greetings, and welcome to The Ace Case, where we make the case for the importance of addressing childhood trauma. Adverse childhood experiences have a ripple effect across society. Trauma is embedded in all of our lives, impacting our health and wellness in many ways. By having honest conversations with local community members, we hope to share stories and ideas surrounding health, wellness, resilience, and healing. Trauma is a current shaping all of our lives. If we attempt to better understand its impacts, we can become better equipped to answer what is possibly the most important question of all. How do we heal from trauma? In this podcast, we will be highlighting the work and perspectives of community members, have a few laughs, and enjoy a non-alcoholic beverage along the way. Wherever you are in your healing journey, this podcast is for you. Thank you to our talented, inspiring guests who volunteered their time to sit down for our conversation. Thank you to OVCDC and ACEs Aware for your continued support. I am your host, Luke Wilson. I'm a master's candidate in social work and am employed by the Owens Valley Career Development Center. This is the ACE case. Thank you for listening. Greetings, listeners. We have a good one for you today. On this episode, I sat down with Meryl Picard. Meryl now works for the language program at OVCDC, Numu Yadaha. Meryl has worn a lot of different hats, both at OVCDC and in the community at large. Meryl has young children and is really involved in health and wellness and and fitness and nutrition work in the community. Meryl has a pretty remarkable story of her own, which she was kind enough to share about her transformation and her healing journey. Um, I know I really benefited from that, and I found her story to be really inspiring, and she's kind of made it one of her life's goals to help others, you know, achieve what she achieved and, and... better themselves through their own journey to health and wellness. Um, So we talked about that. We talked about ACEs, of course. We talked about Merrill's journey through academia, what it was like to leave the reservation, what it was like to be one of the first people in her family to go to college. Uh, We talked about the importance of role modeling, how by demonstrating that something's possible, you can inspire the next generation, create a positive ripple effect. Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground. You know, one of the main themes of our conversation was this idea of dopamine, the brain's reward chemical, and how we might be able to leverage our understanding of dopamine to be more effective at achieving our goals. Um, we talked about not worrying too much what other people think about you and focusing on internal validation over external validation And yeah, we just, we really got into it. We also talked about how a lot of the body and brain systems are applicable to a much different time and place and how for 99% of evolutionary history, uh, these trauma response circuits that we have in our body, these fight or flight reactions, they were all super important. But now when you put them in a, a 21st century environment, they can often be problematic. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Meryl Picard. I want to thank Meryl a lot for coming on and sharing her journey with us. Please enjoy this episode of The Ace Case. Yeah, so welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for coming over here. I know you have a lot on your plate always. 
And yeah, you were someone I was really excited to bring on for a number of reasons, um, primarily because of, you know, all the work you do in the community, both um, as a health coach, but also here at OVCDC, also as a mom, also someone who's involved uh, with the schools here. So, you know, it seems like you're someone who has a lot going on at all times, someone who's very invested in wellness and in the future of this community. So, yeah, I thought you'd have some really good perspective on a lot of the stuff that I'm hoping to talk about on this podcast, okay. a lot of things related to healing, related to wellness. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to just get your perspective on, on some of these topics related to ACEs. So I was wondering if to kick us off, you could just kind of introduce yourself, your job title, things like that. Yeah. Well, Manahu, my name is Meryl Picard. Um, I'm a Bishop Paiute Tribal member. As far as my job title goes, um, I am the new language manager for OBCDC. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. You know, previous to that, I worked in our human resources and did staff development, which is a passion of mine is, you know, really training and help people to transform themselves, you know, into better leaders, better employees, better in their own lives too. So, um, you know, outside of OVCDC realm, um, I became a health and wellness coach. And that started with my own journey uh, to become a better mom, to become a better wife, to be just become a better version of myself too. So that's a little bit about, you know, who I am. I grew up here in Bishop, went away to school, uh, starting in high school. We went to boarding school, Sherman Indian High School, then off to college. Cal Baptist University, and then made my way back here to start my family. <laughs> awesome. So, full circle. Yeah. Cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about that change uh, moving over from HR to language and what specifically drew you to language and um, what you feel like you get out of that work? Yeah. I feel like the the piece I felt like I was missing in HR was that community aspect that I really loved. Mm. Um you know, before I came to OVCDC, I worked in the education uh, realm over with the tribe as the education director, and I missed working with the youth and with the families. And I feel like that's where I'm most passionate um, or where my passion lies is helping others, especially when it comes to obstacles that I faced as a youth growing up on the reservation, mm. but wanting them to, to know and families to know and parents to know, right, that there is more and obstacles are just growth opportunities mm. and that breaking these generational curses. And, and one of them is getting out of here, you know, yeah. sometimes to grow. Not that we can't come back, but sometimes we have to leave to grow into who we are, mm -hmm. you know, because we're so, um, you know, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, at a young age, your parents and those, those main people in your life are kind of molding you. Yeah. And, and you kind of have to learn how to like take some of this clay off of you <laughs> as you become who you want to be. And that's really hard because for a good majority of your life, people have been throwing these things on you. So anyways, um, so the transition was more so because I wanted to, to work in our communities. Culture and traditions and language has been a part of my life. I, I was raised uh, by my grandparents along with my mm. mom because she was a single parent. So yeah. they took a huge role in our lives. Um, you know, so my grandma, you know, took me to Sweat Lodge. Um, you know, I would go with her every Sunday uh, versus going to a, a traditional church. Yeah. 
but as I got older, I did go to church too. And so seeing that the, the, those are very similar, yeah. you know, it's just the way it looks, that it, it looks different. But um, I guess, you know, going back to that is I feel like even when we think about COVID, that healing process that our, our people and our communities need, sometimes it's going back to the root of our traditions and bringing some of those things back because uh, traditionally we were very social people. And so bringing back some of our dances, our songs. So when we talk about, you know, the language apartment, it's more than just speaking the language. It's yeah. also the culture that ties into it. And so bringing those things back as well. So anyways, I was just really excited to join that team. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, that I would love to ask you more questions about, <laughs> um, you know, and, and one of the things you hit on is something I'm hoping to get into later in this podcast, you know, the idea of culture as medicine. And there's some interesting stuff happening right now where it's like a lot of science is actually really supporting that, that mm -hmm. people need, you know, the, the social connection aspect of it. People need um, those traditions are very therapeutic in terms mm -hmm. of healing from trauma and all these things. And it's interesting that, you know, obviously indigenous people have known that for a really long time, but the yeah. science is supporting it now. And you're kind of like, did we really need a lab and all these millions huh. of dollars to prove that? But yeah, but I think that's why we are such resilient people though, too, is because we've already always done those things. Yeah. And sometimes it's just reminding and it, because we're forgetting it, right? Or mm -hmm. we're being taught something completely, mm -hmm. you know, the people who are teaching our children are different than the people who are teaching our children years ago. Absolutely. And yeah. and now it's controlled by what the schools think our yeah. children should be taught. And I was yeah. just talking, to, and sorry, I'm going off the subject here, oh, but I, love it. I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, when they're talking to my kids now at that age, when they're talking about Native Americans and they're talking about them in pretense as if we're not here and we Absolutely. don't exist. That erase our language. Yes. Yeah. And I have to remind my kids, you know, raise your hand and say, oh yeah, I know because my family does this. Yep. Or I ask them what tribe are you from? Be proud of who you are. Yep. So those challenges that we've gone through as people and that resiliency that we're still here is, is something that we need to remember. Yeah. And it needs to be celebrated for sure. And uh, yeah, that's another thing I'm hoping to get into. It's good. These are like little teasers, you know. Um, Keep listening. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, like I, I do think that that's a side of the rhetoric that gets left out so often is, you know, there's all the focus on the trauma and, and justifiably so that needs to be talked about. But I don't think the strength side of it gets as much emphasis as, as it needs to. And I think um, that's the other side of the coin that in my mind is, is missing from the discussion of, of things like historical trauma a lot of the time. Yes. Um, one other thing, I mean, so many things from your first <laughs> uh, statement leapt out at me, but one thing you brought up got me thinking of like, there's this tricky balance, right, of like, I never, I mean, I think it's hard to say that kids should leave this place in the sense of like, I don't want to like, you know, I don't think anyone wants to condemn this place because this place is wonderful. So how do you balance that messaging of saying like, hey, it's fine if you stay, but it's also great if you leave and you mm. gain all this other perspective and experience and mm -hmm. maybe it'll sort of similar to your story, you'll be able to come home with mm -hmm. some new ideas and, and some increased confidence that'll kind of help you along your journey. So how do you, how mm -hmm. do you balance that? Like, 
encouraging kids to leave if they want to, but also supporting kids to stay who feel like staying Yeah, and telling them there's nothing wrong with that. I think one of the hardest things being raised sometimes with multi-generational households, you know, and that respect level of, you know, taking care of your elders and things like that, that was hard for me. And I remember... Um, my grandpa was actually um, not doing really well the year I went off to college. Mm. And I felt like, okay, I'm an adult. I don't need to leave. Maybe I should stay. Yeah. Maybe I should be here helping. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we had so much family. You know, yeah. there were other people there that were able to step up and help, including, you know, my older brother who yeah. was going with my grandma and staying with her in the hospitals and things like that. But one of the things he told me was, you are where you need to be to be helping our family. Yeah. And he, that stuck with me and it kept yeah. encouraging me every time I would hit that low. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing I would tell someone is nothing's going to change here. Mm. Unless you go Mm. and you bring back the change, you know, and you go and get those experiences and those things and those knowledges that we're missing here and that we need someone to go and find and then bring it back to us so that we can thrive Mm. and we can start to heal or we could start to change things that maybe have been done the same way for years. And that's why I'm saying nothing's going to, nothing's going to change much. You know, I've, I've grown up here, but not much has changed. So don't yeah. worry about us. Yeah, yeah. We're all going to be here, go off, and then come back. Yeah. If you choose to. Totally. Wow, that's a really interesting take on it. Can, can you talk about what that was like for you um, leaving and feeling like you had obligations to your family? You know, with your peers, was that difficult? Did they, you know, was there a sense of like, you know, what was there a sense of, not like giving up on this place, but feeling like you had to distance yourself from this place. And was that, that challenging for you? I think at times when I would be away, I felt lonely Yeah, and I would come home and feel a little bit disconnected from the friends and the, mm. the people who I, you know, grew up with and yeah. didn't, didn't feel the same welcome maybe as, um, I just felt left out. Yeah. And at times when, even when I was in college, I remember some of my really close friends who stayed and, and continued to work and thinking at the level of where they were in their careers already versus me who hasn't even gotten started yet yeah. and feeling like, God, is this just a waste of my time yeah. getting this education? Yeah. You know, but I think it doesn't matter. Like you said, what path those of you, those who choose to stay, as long as they continue to grow and not just stay. Yeah at home, you know, but what, what is your purpose? What can you do here then in our community, um, and continue to grow yourself, then that's great. Um, Mm. but then there's going to be those who, of us who go off and sometime are doing this adventure on our own because we've never had anyone else who's gone down that path yet to show us how to say, you know what? It's okay, Meryl, like, come on, I'll show you how. Sometimes we don't have that. So Um, were you one of the first people in your family to go down that path? As far as college goes, yes. Um, my brother did go um, into the mati- uh, military at first, and yeah. then he came back home. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, as far as navigating the college system, I was the first. Uh, there, wow. We come from a family of six. Yeah. My brother being the oldest, me the second oldest, and then yeah. our younger siblings. And um, I, I, again, um, my mom being a single parent, yeah. you know, 
she couldn't support me financially. I couldn't yeah. ask that of her. Yeah. And so I worked my butt off. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know yeah. if I can say that, you know, you in college or in high school so that I could get scholarships and, um, you know, be able to support myself in, in that way. But I had a lot of good help as far as, you know, educational people supporting me awesome. and showing me what things I needed to do. Um, and I don't think I would have gotten that here in, in this community if I would have stayed here. Mm. And I did get that at Sherman, you know, cool. um, uh, that was the other thing that it kind of made me think about is I felt like an outcaster from even adults here, yeah. you know, they, they look, there was a stigma around kids who went to Sherman yeah. as bad kids, or yeah. they were going to come back and they were going to get pregnant and come back home yeah. with a baby. And all those things, even though maybe it, at the time it was like a negative thing mm -hmm. and I wanted to prove them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we got to, we got to find our own motivators to keep yeah. us going and our own, um, goals that we want to achieve for ourselves. And for me, it was setting the example for my younger siblings, yeah. showing them that, okay, I'm clearing the path for you, but I want you to go beyond me then. Mm -hmm. So sure. yeah. that, that at the time it was my siblings, my, my siblings who kind of kept yeah. motivating me. Like I had to set the example for them. And I don't know if it was cause I was one of the older ones that I felt that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, then as an adult, it became my, my own family and my children. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting how the motivation or the, the role modeling is kind of contagious mm -hmm. um, or is something that, you know, can get passed along. Um, I really do want to talk about the motivation and the purpose stuff. Again, I think I want to put that on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And something I'm really curious to hear about is uh, like I was recently sitting in that education summit, the tribal education summit that Gina Jones puts on. Mm -hmm. uh, shout out Gina Jones. She always <laughs> does a great job with that. Um, but one of my favorite parts is where they have this panel mm -hmm. with people from the community who are now college students who have, you know, grown up on the res and then uh, moved on to higher education. And there's just always a really interesting Q&A where people are kind of sharing their experience being in college. And something that always stands out to me is people talking about how hard it is to leave mm -hmm. their families behind, to adapt to this different environment. Um, and also a lot of times feeling like maybe their tribal identity or their values yep. um, aren't necessarily accommodated or respected. And, you know, that's something I've heard a lot of people say is like, you know, my professors just didn't get it. Like mm -hmm. I had a grandpa who passed and I needed to come home yep. and they're like, okay, you get three days. And it's mm -hmm. like, that doesn't, cover it for me that that's not you know that's not how this works where I come from type of thing so I was just curious if you had any experiences like that and what that adjustment period was like moving far away you went to school in Montana right mm -hmm. yeah so like moving far away um, dealing with this administration um, kind of navigating those challenges of like coming from this very tight-knit community and going to somewhere where you didn't necessarily have that community yeah well it's absolutely crazy, I guess, to think because I was already away yeah. at Sherman. Yeah. But let me tell you, it was a huge culture shock for me. My first year, so I actually went to Cal Baptist University as a freshman in college. Okay. So it was right down the street, literally one stoplight away from Sherman. Yeah. So from this place I had been for four years. Yeah. And I felt again so alone. I packed up mm. my little car. Um you know, with all my stuff, I drove down my first day into the dorms and, 
you know, I was navigating all these things by myself and looking around and people, non-natives, primarily white people, yeah. um, you know, and they had their moms and their dads or their brothers or their boyfriends. Yeah. And these people are like helping them move in. And um, I remember going in and checking into my dorm and then they're like, okay, you're on the third floor. We don't have any elevators, so you're going to have to take the stairs, you know, and they're, they're telling me these things. And I remember going to the car and just... Sitting there for a second and this sense of overwhelmness yeah. came upon me and I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. I'm all by myself. Yeah. And um, I remember crying yeah. and thinking like, I just want to go back to Sherman where, you know, I had the support from my teachers and that sure. community there and um, I don't fit in here. Yeah. That was the thing I thought. I don't yeah. fit in here. And the crazy thing is all of a sudden these people with these bright shirts come like, charging over to yeah. me and uh they had this like welcoming crew of like older college students who cool. were there to help people like me nice. and then i was like okay okay it's all right one thing that always sticks with me now though is like you got to remember that these little moments these things that feel like challenges they pass we've survived yeah. all of our bad days yeah and i have to keep reminding myself like this mm. too shall pass yeah you know just take a deep breath but so for me it was that and then being in a, a you know very privileged school i think you mm. know lots of kids who come from you know private schools um yeah. i felt out of place yeah and then I started to deal with that cultural shock the, yeah. because they didn't understand me as a native mm -hmm. person. Many didn't even know natives existed because, again, what are we being taught at school? That's pretense. Those people are not alive anymore. We're not here. Um, or that we live in teepees. And I was like, these things like blew my mind. Yeah. And, and they just did not realize, um, I guess, how I felt. So... I did not do well my first year in college. I've always struggled with school. Mm -hmm. um, I, I spoke about this a little bit actually at the Ed Summit that I I'd got myself tested my last year in college um, because I was struggling so much. Yep. Found out I was dyslexic. But anyways, my my freshman year yeah. didn't do well. Um, got put, I was on a scholarship, a full ride scholarship through yep. uh, Gates Millennium, uh, oh, cool. the, the Bill Gates scholarship. Yeah. Well. I got put on academic probation, yep. um, you know, with financial aid because my grades weren't good. Yep. And I was same year, my grandpa passed away. I was just ready to give up. And yeah. I came back to the community and I was working during the summer and I was a tutor in Big Pine at their education oh, center. Cool. Joni Hansen yep. helped convince me that I need to go back. Shout out, Joni. Yeah. And um, my... My uncle lived up in Montana and his wife worked for the school. And they told mm. me about all the native supportive services that they have there, the native community, you know, and they convinced me to move up there and they got me enrolled. And I just did the same thing. I packed up my little car and I moved yeah. up to this place, this new state I had never even been to, yeah. traveling that far alone. Um, you know, going down to Riverside was one thing because I did it a lot, but going up to Montana now all by myself. So it was difficult, but I think it's about finding that place where you can find that community within the community, you know, and the University of Montana had that for Native kids. Awesome. And I started to thrive there. Really cool. Yeah. Again, I have so many questions. <laughs> um, you know, I guess two of them would be, do you feel like that was like a muscle you already had strengthened by the time you went to Cal Baptist of like, 
I'm throwing myself in new situations. I'm, you know, I have that. Was that something you cultivated over time, like that bravery or that capacity to be able to put yourself in uncomfortable or challenging situations where maybe mm-hmm. nobody looks like you or you don't have the same support as other kids? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my second question was like, was there a moment that distinctly stands out maybe at your first school or maybe even at your second school, like a moment where you were like really recognizing the dynamic we were just talking about, about like people don't understand me and my cultural identity. Like, is there anything hmm. that stands out in terms of a single event? Hmm. Oh, gosh. No. Because <laughs> I think even sometimes Native people didn't even understand. Mm. And I could give you an example of what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, so I actually did an internship in Washington, D.C. one summer. Cool. And um, there were a lot of kids that I remember when I got there and I was thinking, I don't look Native. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's such a horrible thing to think, um, you know, but they were from Oklahoma. A lot yeah. of them were from Oklahoma. And some of these girls were like in sororities and things like that. Now, my grandpa was an alcoholic a majority of my life, and yeah. he did change, I think, because of us, you know, his mm. grandchildren. Um, but I remember them treating me so bad because I made the choice as a very young person that I was not going to drink. Yeah. Um, that was just something I didn't want to do because, again, I wanted to end that cycle. Yeah. I didn't like seeing family yeah. members coming home, being thrown in front of me, you know, passed yeah. out. And I didn't want that for myself. Yeah. I think I looked at a lot of other people's challenges in my life and I was like, I don't want that. Totally. Um, so anyways, went there and I remember these girls, like they kept pressuring me, like, I don't understand why you don't drink, you know, why, um, you know, all young people our age are drinking. Like I've never yeah. met anyone our age who doesn't drink, you know, like just have a drink. What's it going to do? And I remember blowing up on her and saying, you know what? You do not understand. Yeah. And I said, the stereotypes that we get from being native and yeah. being perceived as alcoholics is huge. And I don't want that for myself. And mm. I don't want people to think that of myself. So then after that, I remember people thinking like, that was so harsh, Meryl. Like you said, basically, I think I said it in a way like you don't look native, so you won't, you don't understand. And they thought that I was like saying like, you look white. So, uh. you know, whatever. And, and they thought I had this, um, I guess, I, I don't know, this outlook on people who didn't look native. Mm. And I said, that is not the thing. I said, yeah. my brother, and my brother's going to be the one who edits this. <laughs> my brother is a redhead. Yeah. My brother doesn't look native. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying. But my brother knows and wouldn't talk to someone like that because he was raised in a way that he understands why I'm choosing not yeah. to drink. Yeah. You know, and so for you to keep pressuring me is, is the issue. Yeah. You know, it's not that you're white, Mm -hmm. but. It's like, you didn't feel like they were respecting your experiences. And then. As being a dark native, I guess. As being the native that people see and perceive as the alcoholic people. Yeah. You know, Uh, I guess was the, what I was trying to, to say. So even sometimes we get it from our own, you know, our own people. Yeah. 
you know, and um, so I had a really hard time with that, that, that cultural um, shock on, yeah. on, you know, being away from my community, sure. uh, you know, in, in California, people think we're Mexican, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so that sense of like, they still don't know that I'm native, mm-hmm. you know, cause they won't even ask. They'll just assume I'm Mexican. Yeah. Start speaking Spanish to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't even know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. No, that was great. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm always curious, you know, just to hear those moments. There's there's so much identity stuff wrapped in there, but like those moments mm-hmm. when you realize, you know, outside of here, what the collective level of understanding is of history, and you realize mm-hmm. how much um, is missing or what type of narrative is being spun to people, and it's it's mm-hmm. kind of shocking sometimes. So yeah, that, I think that's an interesting example of like just one of those moments and. You know, there was there was a lot of interesting stuff in there, but one thing I'd, I'd like to pull from it is just kind of what was the contrast? What support were you getting in Montana that you weren't necessarily getting in uh, California that made, made it stick? Mm. Again, just the understanding, I guess, of Native people and not having to explain who I am. Yeah. I even had a, a friend in at that same university. She was black. Yep. And she too decided to go to an all black school mm. in the South. Yeah. And 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 we would I ran into some of the girls who again were white that we were going to school with and friends with, and they were like, But I don't understand why you guys feel like you have to go to that school. You know, like I don't understand that. I said, here's a thought. It would be like if you went to Mexico. And now you are the minority and you don't fit in and people don't understand you and you have to explain yourself all the time over and over again. I don't want to do that. And and that's what I loved about Sherman. I didn't have to explain myself. Yeah. I just fit in. And I, for the first time, I was a, surrounded by other girls who felt and looked like me or understood me and my dynamics and my family and my history. And I didn't have to explain it. We just had that understanding. And so when I went to the University of Montana, where there was, again, lots of natives, it was yeah. that we already, we already understood each other. Yeah. You know, reservations are very similar. Mm-hmm. Obstacles and the challenges that we all face are very similar. Now our traditions and our, you know, our own um, maybe upbringings and things like that may be different. But for the most part, mm-hmm. they're very similar. Yeah. And I think that's why I probably was drawn to even marrying someone who was native yeah. because he understood me. Yeah, <laughs> I totally. didn't have to explain myself. Yeah. You know, so I think that was the difference from going to from Cal Baptist, mostly white privileged, totally. you know, yeah. students to a university like the University of Montana that had a good population of minority students, even though, you know, the native population was still small compared yeah. to the bigger population, but it was it was still yeah. present. Yeah. They even have a Native American center there now, a oh, cool. beautiful, huge center, you know, that is specifically there for Native American studies, but also has supportive services for Native people. Awesome. So, and did that, that was the difference? Yeah, it sounds like it made all the difference. I mean. And it's interesting in the case of those white girls being like, I don't understand. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, you don't understand. Like, um, yeah, I mean, was that support that you were feeling, was that coming from peers? Was that coming from staff? Do they have much Native faculty up there? Yeah, they do. Cool. I mean, they don't have much, but, you know, when you compare it to, yeah. I mean, even here in Bishop, we what maybe have like two or three staff, but same there, you know, you have about maybe 
three to five and the, and it's grown. Yeah. And it's grown because of the system there of being supportive for Native people to get educated. Yeah. Um, we've brought in Pearl Yellow Yellow Woman or Yellow Man um, here. Yeah. I went to school with her. Cool. So that's why she came to our communities because I had that connection with her at the University of Montana. We were both students there. Yeah. So I think it was a combination. It was a combination of the support from other Native students, other Native staff. And again, I think in the back of my mind, always my family in mind and thinking like, I want them to see that I did it so they could do it. Yeah. And even the community, just here, Bishop, our tribal people, I guess, always with other people in mind too. Like if I could do it and I struggled with education yeah, and it was hard for me, like I always say, I had to try twice as hard as everyone else. Yeah. Even my siblings, like sometimes they, they made it look so easy because they were, they were good readers. I struggled with yeah. reading. Yeah. You know, I struggled with writing. Yeah. And I had to try twice as hard as everyone. For and sure. so I thought, okay, if I could do this, then you could do this. Yeah. Oh man. Again, like I'm really interested in the adaptive side of adversity, you know, mm. of like people with learning disabilities. And I think I've talked to you about this before, mm-hmm. but I have some learning disabilities as well. And I'm a little neurodivergent. I kind of like that <laughs> term, but like, you know, my brain doesn't work the same way as a lot of people's do but that doesn't mean I'm dumb even mm-hmm. if I'm just not like conventionally smart and mm-hmm. you learn all these little tricks and ways that you can get by in school yes. even if it's not just like yeah you know being a good test taker like you figure out these little strategies and I think that's really powerful is like just that resourcefulness that's and that. the resilientness totally, again <laughs> totally that's the resilience yeah so I think that's really interesting and and just to kind of close out the academia piece you know I'm I'm really interested in like, there's just demographically, there are not that many native people in academia, both Mm -hmm. like as students, um, both as professors, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the way through higher education from undergrad to, to master's to PhD. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I'd be curious to get your perspective on some of the reasons for that, but, um, you know, I think a part of it is there is the historical precedent. There's a there's a mistrust of schools. I mm-hmm. think a lot of that's founded in the history with the boarding schools and just a lot of the really shameful, terrible history around schools here. And then, you know, I think another reason is what we were just talking about. There's not that community. There's not the other representation. So you're kind of on an island and oh, yeah. feeling like people don't understand you. And then I think like kind of what you were talking about earlier with the identity piece of just like, There's a lot of ways, both big and small, that kind of suggest like, hey, maybe this isn't the place for you or like maybe you're out of place. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I know for me, I'm in a program right now that has an indigenous studies emphasis and there's not that many indigenous professors. Mm -hmm. And a part of me still feels like, you know, wouldn't that that would bring a lot of strength to the setup. And then some of the only I have a really small cohort, but some of the only indigenous students there have had to leave because they've had to deal with, like we were talking about, like family emergencies. Traditional ceremonies we have to partake in. Totally. Mm -hmm. And and one of them had to do with like the death of a close family member, but also some of those big fires in Northern California Mm. that came through. And it's just like, I can't do school on top of all these other ways I'm being called to my community because my community comes first. So, um, you know, I guess that's kind of my rambling way of saying like, 
how do you think we can change that dynamic and what are ways we can address people getting that message, indigenous people in academia getting the message that like, hey, um, this isn't the place for you? Mm. Sometimes I think when it comes to, to teachers is sometimes it's also letting their ego down a little bit <laughs> to say like, I don't know all things, you know, and that's okay. And that's even a part of leadership you know, that sometimes I don't know all the things. <laughs> and and to to ask my my students who are in the audience, you yeah. know, um, maybe there's some of you in here who yeah. are native, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe you guys could bring a perspective to 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 the class today that you know is part of your tribe. So I remember I had a Native American studies teacher who actually did that, but he was also native. And yeah. he said, because I'm not the expert for not even my own tribe, yeah. you know, um, and so he would he would say that because yeah. lots of the Native kids did take Native American studies because they felt like it was an easy course. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I've been studying this for years. Yeah. But I remember I went to Palomar College to catch up on some credits in the summertime. Cool. And I had a, a, a professor who was talking about tribes and he was pronouncing the names wrong. Yeah. And I just said, oh, excuse me. I said, it's actually pronounced this. You know, because yeah. I went to school with some of these kids um, yeah. in different areas, different tribes. So I knew how they pronounced yeah. it. And um, he was just like, oh, OK, well, how do you how do you know that? And I said, well, I'm actually Paiute or, yeah. you know, yeah. if, if he was talking about that or I can't remember. And yeah. I just remember I think that ego got in the way right away with him. And he was yeah. just like, oh, you think, you know, more than me yeah. or whatever. But okay, so going back to what you were first saying, what what kind of um, my where my mind went is most of us think we can't afford it. Mm. And I think that's the biggest thing that the popped into support. my head in the beginning yeah. is I can't make I can't ask my mom to help me with this. Yeah. How? Yeah. She still has you know four other of my siblings still at home. Yeah. How is she going to help me? I know yeah. she can't. And not that she wouldn't want to. And so I think already we think, oh, we're putting this big burden on our family. Yeah. And if it wasn't again for Sherman's staff really showing me a different way Mm. of getting that financial support and help, maybe I wouldn't have thought it was possible for myself. But I also have heard people in the community always say, you know, well, well, college isn't for everyone. Yeah. How do you know that? You haven't even tried. Have you? Have they even gone yet? Go and see if college is for you or not for you. I also think that um, um, now I see I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, college isn't for everybody. So, oh, yeah. So college, you know, I think sometimes you have to go and experience it. And, and then, you mm. know, if you do decide that, oh, I know what I was going to say is, yeah, the biggest obstacle I seen, even when I came back and I was helping students through through that educational process, yeah. is that they go off their first year and then they come back home. But mm. one of the biggest things is that financial piece. They don't have enough money yeah. to pay for their rent, to yeah. pay for their books. So how do you expect them to live? Yeah, you know, um, one of the other uh, entities here is our housing department. They they help yeah. you with like three hundred dollars towards rent, I think, and, mm-hmm. but you have to qualify for it. Yeah, three hundred dollars. Yeah, that doesn't pay your rent. Yeah, you know, so again, you're having to navigate this financial system, mm. 
and we we talk about the company we work for, OVCDC, and trying to build self-sufficiency for people. Yeah. But most of us grow up with families who don't know how to manage their money. Yeah. And most families off the reservation own homes or properties and things like that that they yeah. could borrow against to help their kids go to school. Yeah. We can't borrow against our homes here on the reservation. Yeah. It is no, it, you know, and that could go into a whole nother story for yeah. me in my life because yeah. um, I'm, I'm dealing with those struggles right now too. The financial literacy stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and no, like the, the, the home situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even trying to get our kids to go off and get educated, but come back. Where, yeah. they, where are they going to live? Yeah. How do we bring our people back here yeah. that are educated? Yep. So, um, so I would say the biggest barrier is is that financial piece, and that people grow up afraid to take out credit. I was. Yeah. That I don't know. I didn't know how to manage credit. Yeah. I didn't know how to get credit. I was so afraid of it that I, you know, anytime you know they try to offer you a credit card, no. You know, yeah. and so I thought the same thing with loans. Totally. And, and yes, there's lots of people. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of people who are still paying back their student loans. Yeah. You know, and they feel like that's such a barrier on them. But to be honest, they wouldn't have those careers or those jobs they're in yeah. without that education. Yeah. So it's really just about the mindset and how you're thinking about these things. Mm. Because even if I was still paying on my student loans, which I'm not, and I'm grateful for because yeah. I had that that scholarship. Yeah. But eventually I did because I I, I failed so many times with school. Yeah. I went longer than the scholarship would allow for. And so I had to pay for my last year in, in college out-of-state tuition, keep uh, in mind, because yeah. I was going to a university in Montana yeah. and I'm a California resident. <laughs> Not so cheap. again, it's just about, I think what would help people is finding, they need more people like us, like me who went yeah. through the process yeah. that now could help them navigate the process or other people who are going to help guide them while they're there. Because I didn't have that again at home with my mom, although she wanted to, For sure. she was the emotional support. For sure. But... Yeah. I just want to say that yeah. native families and moms, I think, are so quick to say, you know, it's okay. Just come back. It's yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're not going to, you know, I, I could tell it's really hard. Just come home and then, you know, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. The and I, I remember kept yeah. having to be like, this is not what I wanted from you. Like, <laughs> no, I'm fine. And then I would like re-energize myself and be yeah. like, no, I'm going to stay. I could do this. Yeah. So. And there's that, yeah, that comfort piece of just knowing that you could go home. Yeah. Yeah, that's, wow, that's really interesting. And I think something you said that stuck out was like how important it was just learning how to navigate that whole world of scholarships, of financial aid, of all those little things. And, you know, it just cumulatively, like all the things that certain people have to deal with, you, you realize like once it starts to stack up, how much of a burden that is to carry of like, okay, oh, yeah. you know, no one here looks like me. No one here understands my story. And then also, you know, I don't have enough financial support to cover it. So I also have to work. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe like I have to go home for this thing now because I have this obligation. So just like all these extra mm -hmm. things that someone might have to deal with, I think that really adds up and, and paints that picture of like just going to school is only a part of the battle. You oh, know, yeah. There's all these other things yeah. um, that are really influencing that experience and, and that learning process. And, you know, it's I think you start breaking it down into little pieces and seeing all the uh, barriers that are in the way of, mm -hmm. of going to higher education. Um, 
Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know if there is a one single solution, but I, I do want to shout out all the people out there that are doing great work and, and people like you who are showing that it is possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people do need to pave the way for stuff like that because representation is so important. And then people, you know, can see like, oh, Meryl did this. Or like, you know, on that panel, I was talking about seeing all those people who are out there doing really cool stuff right mm-hmm. now from here. Yeah. It's awesome. And I think it, yeah. it sends a message to kids from here. For totally. Sure. And each one of their stories are so different and unique and their challenges and their obstacles. Totally. You know, so, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Um, I could talk about education stuff all day. Um <laughs> You know, and maybe if we have time later, we could talk about like your your role in the education system here. And I'd be curious, like, what kind of changes you're you're looking to make in the education system here. But I think maybe we could actually swerve and, and kind of pivot into talking about the health stuff. Okay. Um, and just maybe if you could just give like a, you know, a brief synopsis of sort of your health journey and and what realizations you had related to health and then how you um, translated that into helping other people. I'd love to, yeah. Um, So for me, um, moved home, right? I am now mom to three beautiful boys, wife, working a career in education for our people. But I was really going down this path of uh, unhealthiness um, finding ways to to cope or deal with the, the day-to-day stress, not only of, you know, being a mom, but managing people, you know, and managing a program, managing grants, ma- you know, dealing with relationships, you know, with the tribe. On you. Yeah. And um, it was a lot of pressure. Yeah. I started to deal with a lot of health-related issues. I had the shingles, which they said, you know, and this was before I was 30, and yeah. they said that you, this has to do with the high amount of stress you're under, you know, because people don't typically get shingles until they're, you know, elderly. Yeah. And I had it after my last son was born, um, yeah. which was hard because I, I was breastfeeding him and I yeah. had to cover, you know, mm. so that he wouldn't get it because he wasn't uh, vaccinated towards that yet. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of stress related things that were happening to my body. Yep. Um, and then we decided to move in with my mom mm-hmm. uh, to save some money to to get a home of our own. Yeah. Um, and I started to see that she wasn't taking care of herself. You know, I didn't really know before because she's diabetic, but we didn't live with her. So I didn't mm. see her habits and the things yeah. that she was doing. Yep. Um, but what I realized is I couldn't help her because yeah. I had the same habits. Yeah. She instilled habits, those habits in yeah. me. And um, I think being a very uh, athletic person the majority of my life, I yeah. just ate whatever I ate because totally. my metabolism was doing the work and I was, you know, playing sports and doing the things. But as I gained more weight with each child, it got harder and harder mm-hmm. to get back into those routines. And I started to sit on the sidelines of the things that I love to do, like yeah. play softball with my family yeah. or with my husband. That was something we did together. Mm-hmm. And I remember just like feeling so much pain. I had plantar fasciitis in my feet. Yeah. I had back problems and, and like inflammation in my body. Yeah. Um, and I had seen a quote that one of my friends put up and it said, if you don't focus on your wellness now, you'll be forced to focus on your illness. And these were all around the times where I was like thinking I needed to make this shift, yeah. but I didn't know how. 
I didn't know what I needed to do to change. And I knew a big part of it, you know, the doctors kept telling me that you need to lose some weight. And I was like, F you, like there's something wrong with me. There's something medically wrong with me. And I kept thinking it was because I had C-sections and that's why my back hurt so bad. And so I kept trying to find out like, what is going on with me? And So having more of more of these issues and and nothing really coming from, you know, blood work or, you know, yeah. x-rays and looking at the things, I was like, okay, something's got to change then. And surprisingly, I came across a friend who was sharing her journey and her story on, on health, and cool. she became my coach. And the system that that I coach or the program that I coach that mm-hmm. helped me to lose the weight it was broken down in a way that was so simple for me to slowly ease into this change, Mm. slowly teach me one healthy meal at a time and prepare that for myself. And so it gave me tools to not only focus on on how to eat healthier and and that food is fuel for our bodies. It's not there to satisfy us, but Mm. there's so much satisfying food out there. And I realized I was addicted to food. Oh, for sure. And that most of us yeah. are addicted to food. Yeah. And that it's the the one thing, though, that we do not shame people for their addiction. Yeah. We shame people for their addiction to drugs and to alcohol and most things like definitely. that. But no yeah. one's going to say, put that cake down, Meryl. You don't need that cake. You don't need that ice cream. No, they're going to say, have cake. You yeah. don't want cake. You don't yeah. want ice cream. They're giving me the drug. Yeah. That's hurting my body. It's literally handed over to you on and a platter. Over. Yeah. yeah. And it was hard. My first, um, my first few months on the program, I started right before the un- or before the holidays. Yep. And um, you know, some of the people you would think would support you the most, like family, were actually the sab- sabotagers in my life. Whoa. And and maybe even still are secretively. <laughs> um, um, and so it's a it, it's a it's a lonely battle. Yeah. You know, changing your health because we have lots of people and not just natives anymore. Yeah. Americans in general are suffering with diabetes at a high rate now. And it's because the sugars and things that are hidden in our foods that uh, we eat, you it's know, an epidemic. it is a huge epidemic that no one knows about, you know, that's silently killing all of us. Um, so yes, I, I got into this health journey, uh, first and foremost for myself, but to set the example for my mom and mm. again, to break that cycle, sick of seeing our native people get diagnosed with diabetes. And yeah. then, you know, I remember her feeling afraid to take the medication cause her brother actually got cancer from the medication uh, and then he passed away. Um, it's okay. I think again, these, these obstacles and these challenges in our life have to help you know, shift us. Yeah. And so, um, I had to show myself first. Yeah. And then my mom came along with me, my sister-in-law who was diagnosed with pre-diabetic came along and it helped because now I had this, this support around me. We were doing it together. We were helping each other. Um, but just like anything in life, there's tension, right? Yeah. And, you do good and then it's like, okay, come on back, you yeah, know, totally. and it challenges you. But that's why I think with health and people will say, you know, oh, this diet thing you're on, tell me about it. No, I'm on a, I'm trying to change my lifestyle yeah. because if I don't change my lifestyle, it will be a diet and I'm going to revert right back to those old yeah. habits. But it's constantly growing and changing and, and yeah. realizing these things, you know, that I, I do have to create new habits around. So 
anyways, that's that's the health journey and how it got started. And and I feel better. That's amazing. That's the biggest thing. People yeah. think it's the appearance because they see my physical transformation. Yeah. I lost over 65 pounds. Congrats. That's 65 pounds off of my body. Yeah. You know, in those joints, in those areas where I was hurting. I couldn't get off the ground sometimes. I'd go to the movie theaters and a pain would shoot up my back, you know, and my family would already be leaving. And I'm like, I help, yeah. you know. Yeah. I was dealing with so many things. And yeah. not to say that everyone deals with those things. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's why they're not willing to change because they haven't had the pain Mm and those things that I endured and I was no longer willing to endure them. I want to live for my kids. I want to be here and show up at the best person and not be the mom I was before. I was coming home from work and I'd flop on the couch, turn on Netflix. I didn't want to cook dinner. I didn't want anyone to bother me. I had no patience, no tolerance for the kids. I was snapping at them. It's not who I want to be. So when I think about my health journey and my transformation, that's what I see. And that's what I want for people. It's mm-hmm. not about the appearance and looking better yeah, or shaming someone. Yeah. It's not about those things. Yeah. It's really about how we feel. Yeah. Oh, again, I have so many questions and ideas. <laughs> um, yeah. What is it? There's like some law of the universe where it's like, right, as you're trying to eat good, that's when like your mom calls you up and is like, <laughs> hey, I made ribs and mac and cheese. And people are just like offering you free ice cream on yeah. the street. Yeah. But there is something I feel like where, you know, having willpower is just, it's such a challenging aspect of, of making those types of changes. Well, wait, wait, wait. No, it's not because it's a matter of sticking habits they yeah. make us, right? Yeah. So that trash can over there, if this is your office and you know your trash can's there, but the janitor moves it somewhere, yeah. where are you going to go? You're going to go to the spot where that trash can is there because yeah. it's a habit. Yeah. So we have to create new habits. It's not about willpower. Totally. It's about creating a habit and sticking with it over yeah. time. Even when it's hard, yeah. you have to stick with it for over 60 days and yeah. give it that chance. Totally. And, and, and that's hard to break when you have these addictive foods, when, when we're thinking about food, for example, yeah. because we're addicted to it. Absolutely. And it's, it's like yeah. detoxing. Yeah. And then we crave it. And then when we think about the emotional responses we have to things in yeah. our life, people comfort themselves with food. Totally. And, and so it's just about ha- creating habits. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, willpower maybe wasn't the right word. I think <laughs> um, no, no. This is stuff I really want to talk about. Yeah. Um, I think just, I guess something I'm thinking about, and like, I kind of subscribe to the idea that like humans are all different but the same mm-hmm. at the same time, right? And yeah. your story is something, you know, that it, it's definitely unique, and it, it's you know, you're specific to you as an individual, but also like that a lot of people have had a similar situation where they. Uh, are essentially like experiencing this like piling on or snowball effect Mm. of like, you know, I have an injury or I just gave Mm -hmm. birth and then you lose energy and you start eating more and then it's even harder to get that energy back. Mm -hmm. And then that contributes to more health problems. And it's just like, it seems like more and more things are are getting piled on to weigh you down. Mm -hmm. And then it almost, the inverse seems to be true where it's like you start making this one positive change and then it's kind of this like cascading series of, of positive changes. And, mm-hmm. um, what you spoke to, I think is, is something that I'm super fascinated in and, and trying to read about a lot is like this link between our, our brains and our bodies. Mm-hmm. And like when we are 
stressed out, when we are not well, the habits we're going to engage in Mm -hmm. and how those habits are going to then in turn make our mental space even worse. Mm -hmm. And then again, we see that cycle, just you're in the spin cycle again. And something that you've always said, and and maybe I'm on a tangent now, that that always stuck with me is that thing about like the oxygen masks in Mm. the plane that you got to help yourself before you can help other people. And um, that's something I've really been experiencing lately is like I it's much easier for me to just try and get lost in my work and mm-hmm. not think about myself mm-hmm. or to put that on the back burner. Mm-hmm. And that um, unless I'm really taking care of myself and unless my motivation is really coming from that positive place, that's going to come out my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to come out my relationships. Yeah, And just, uh, just the way you talked about that link between like environmental stressors mm-hmm. and like health challenges and it all yes. kind of making this, you know, you this gumbo. Yeah, you can't pour from an empty cup, basically. For sure. And I think the biggest thing, too, sometimes as parents and as moms, they we, we feel selfish mm-hmm. when we're taking care of ourselves. Or For if sure. I eat before my kids eat. Yeah. But I can't help them. Like the oxygen yeah. mask. I can't help yeah. my kids if I don't put my own oxygen mask on first. So I have to lead with my own health. And then I get to help them. And then I get to pull up, you know, not only my family, but my community along yeah. with me. And that's what started to happen with this change is then that there were people in my community who knew me and trusted me and wanted to go on this journey with yeah. me. And that's my biggest mission. Yeah. But again, the the crab effect happens, right? And it's like, oh, you guys are doing all so well. I'm going to pull you all suckers back down. <laughs> Come on. Like, you don't get to do well. Um, but so the, the biggest tool that I started to coach my clients through is what we call structural tension. So they get an educational component with it. Cool. And it, the structural tension of like a, a rubber band, right? There's tension in it when you pull it. Yeah. And we have we have our current reality down here on the bottom, mm. how I'm currently feeling like when I started my journey, right? But yeah. I had to think with the future in mind up here, what I wanted to achieve mm. and what who I wanted to be. Who was the future Meryl? What did she do? How did she move her yeah. body? What did she put into her body? Yeah. Who did she surround herself? Things like that. And then there's the secondary choices in between in this tension, mm. right? And those are our choices every day. Yeah. Well, now I became aware of my choices. Yep. And now I knew, okay, everything is a choice, right? Mom asking me to come over and have those ribs and the, yeah. you know, all these things. I have a choice. Yeah. So it's about what little choices here are going to get me to this future self and constantly yeah. thinking with future Meryl in mind and who she wanted to become, not what current Meryl is doing. Yeah. Because nothing changes unless something changes. Yeah. And I had to change my choices. And I still do because I'm still on this journey. I'm still living my life. For sure. And I still have to constantly readjust. Yeah. Um, You know, I I would even tell people like restructure in our life, you know, for my family too. But it's about those little choices, those little wins, right? We were, you asked me about the the dopamine, you know, it's, those are the little things right in between that help keep us recharged and re-motivated. And sometimes it's rethinking about, okay, now, now that I lost the weight, what's my current reality now? Mm. What am I growing towards now? Because it's not the same as it was a year ago. 
Meryl's different now, right? But who's future Meryl now and a year from now yeah. here where I am now? Who do I want to be? Because that tension is no yeah. longer there. I have to pull the tension again. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm not going to keep growing. Yeah. And then we revert right back to the the, ten, the rubber band pulls us right back, yeah. right? So I don't know if that helps, um, you know, no, answer. but. But that's what I think a lot of us need is to create that tension in our life again yeah. and, and work towards creating, you know, one little healthy habit at a time. And and it sounds like it's hard, but it's empowering. It is hard. And, and something I'm picking up from what you're saying is that for you, and I think in a lot of people's cases, effective change isn't. You know, we live in this instant gratification culture where it's like yes. I get ads all the time on YouTube that's like, take this pill and you'll have a six pack, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like it doesn't work like that. Like these yeah. changes are big. You know, it's it's like you said, it's many small things yeah. that kind of amalgamate to a, a much bigger thing. And it, it's a lot of time. Yeah. And I think that's what's tricky is you can be making good decisions six days out of the week and mm-hmm. then. You know. Yeah, uh, but what I tell people is even if you do, because I hear people say, "Oh, oh, that I took a cheat day." Yeah. Or something like that, and I say, "No, you made a choice." Yeah. It's okay. Your yeah. very next choice could be a good choice again, and that one choice yeah. you made over time, if you make good choices, yeah, the majority of them are good choices. Totally. It doesn't matter if yeah. you had cake at that birthday party. Yeah. But I will tell you what: when I was in my health journey to lose the weight, yeah, I made those choices over and over again to not have those unhealthy things, so that I could get to this point in my life that I am now. That every once in a while, I can have it. So. Totally. No, I think that's great. And you really set me up well for the dopamine stuff back there too, just talking about <laughs> like the motivation and change. So I really do want to get into that. But um, could I pause you real quick? Yeah, yeah. So I actually have an appointment. Could we come back and finish? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What's, when's your appointment? At eleven. Is it eleven? Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's eleven. Okay. All right, and we are back. So we took a brief little intermission, and we're here for round two. And I thought maybe an interesting place to start would be um, just kind of getting back to you talking about what a revelation it was, changing your personal health and then the ripples of that uh, positively impacting people in your family, people in your community. Mm -hmm. Um, What health advice would you give to someone who's kind of in that space that you were describing where like your low motivation, low dopamine, just Mm -hmm. sitting there like really struggling, what what advice would you give to that person? I guess going back to what I was saying with like leading with the future in mind, I would say, you know, what do you want? Do you want to stay here? Do you want to stay in this spot in your life where you can't do much? And you're like I was mentioning, you're sitting on the sidelines, you know, just watching your life kind of go by or happen to you, you know, or do you want to make changes so that you're, life is happening for you, you know, and you are in the driver's seat. And so if that's what you want and you're ready and you're sick and tired of that situation, then I would say, you know, jump in, you know, both feet, not one foot, you know, because I think people maybe who have tried things before feel Mm. like, oh, it didn't work for me. And so they're kind of in, but not fully in. And for me, I had to be fully in. Yeah. Um, in order to make the changes. And so um, what I would say then after that, once you feel like you commit, maybe you write out your goals and you decide what you want for that future self, you know, what do you want to change? 
then work with someone to help you with those changes. Because you, if you would have known how to do it, you would have done it. Yeah. But to be honest, I didn't know how to help myself when it yeah. came to the food, you know, and getting started because I didn't eat well. I didn't know what to do. I would, I always talk about like I would um, save recipes that I thought were healthy recipes, but then I wouldn't try them. Yeah. I still didn't have the motivation. Totally. So, and I hated cooking. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I would say is like write out what you want. And then depending on what that is for yourself, go find someone to help you with it. Like I did go at one point, go speak to a nutritionist at Toyabi. Cool. But I left there feeling like, okay, I got to count calories and micronutrients. And I didn't know what any of that was. I was just like, wait, what? Uh, I still don't know what to eat. (laughs) Totally. And so then and then I left feeling defeated still. And I'm like, okay, that didn't help me. So I think finding someone, and this is the part of life that I think when we grow through the obstacles, we get to help other people. But if we never grow through our obstacles and these same things get, keep getting, you know, mm. hitting us, that that means we haven't grown through it. And that's why we keep getting challenged with it over and over again. And I think even when we think about like self-sufficiency and low-income families and things like that, it's like, because we're never growing through it and figuring out how do I, how do I get mm. past this? Instead, we're like playing the victim maybe, right? Mm. And poor me, uh, this is happening to me again, right? These That's because I live here or, you know, the, the government's doing it to me. So we start blaming all these other entities or people and things. I was mm. raised by a single mom. I have alcoholic parents whatever it may be, right? Mm. Instead of flipping that and saying, this is my reason why. And I think that's the difference with me is I've always flipped everything and said, this is not going to be me. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting when you said you based a lot of life, your life decisions on like what you're seeing around you. And you're like, well, I don't want to be that or that. Mm -hmm. And it almost more of like a process of elimination Mm -hmm. helped you kind of determine that path. Yeah. There's something interesting in there. Well, first, let me ask you this. How much in your perspective is this just like an issue that's founded in like a lack of education around nutrition and cooking? And, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around eating healthy, um, Mm -hmm. predominantly that it needs to be really expensive. Yes. Or that uh, it needs to taste terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that you're yeah. like, need to eat some weird vegetable you can't pronounce. But I do think there are lots of ways to cook healthy for cheap. So how much of it do you think is, is something that has to do with people just not really having that that knowledge or that education? A lot. A lot has to do with that. But I think it also goes back to just, again, the habits. And, you know, for example, one thing I, I always would hear my mom say was like, well, I had to do that because it was easier and mm-hmm. and you're right, the money thing, right? I had to feed six of you yeah. and, you know, I could buy bulk of beans and rice yeah. and that helps fill up your guys' bellies. Um, Cereal. Yeah. But also the hidden stuff, the, the things that I found really interesting once I started to learn more about it was the hidden sugars and things like condiments, like ketchup. And now I'm like, 
Don't even offer that to my kids. If they're not asking for it, don't even give it to them. Because what starts to happen then is we crave those unhealthy things because they're addicting. They truly are. And um, then we want more of it and more of it. And we're never satisfied. It only gives us a temporary satisfaction so that then we need that satisfaction again. So what do we do? We go have more of it. I always like to use the example of like chips and salsa. Yeah. For me, I can't stop once I start because it's only temporarily satisfying me. So then I want more and more and my brain's not, you know, and it truly is not shutting off to say you're full. Yeah. Because it's that dopamine that's saying this is giving me pleasure right now. Yeah. And then you're like, ugh, I feel sick now. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect primer on dopamine. And, and I think what happens, what you're talking about is you eat more chips, your dopamine baseline mm-hmm. lowers and it really just stops being as pleasurable. Yeah. You know, so it's like, that's why your first bite of ice cream is fantastic. But when you're in the mm-hmm. bottom of your second pint of Ben and Jerry's, it's just, you know, it's not, it's, it's a hollow feeling oh, and it's kind of disgusting. a sad feeling. Yeah. And I think that's this interesting thing with like the psychology and the neuroscience of some of these habits mm-hmm. of like, you're basically looking for that reward. You're feeling yep. low motivated, you're feeling down. And the way you try to fill that void is by getting a dopamine hit. Yep. So for some people that might be doom scrolling social media, for some people that might be substances, mm-hmm. for other people that might be food. I think for a lot of people, like you said, food's a little more socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like the... The effects of that, what people are going for in the way the brain um, interprets something like something pleasurable like ice cream is almost similar to an opioid. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I'm, I'm really curious. I want to get into this stuff mm-hmm. um, in this pod about just ways we can like almost weaponize neuroscience, mm-hmm. like ways we can use what we're learning about the brain right now to actually alter our behaviors in ways that are effective. And there's so much really interesting science out there right now with that stuff. There is. And one of the things that we help clients through is what we, the tool we call stop challenge choose and Mm -hmm. it's training your brain, right? To stop, think about this, challenge yourself a little bit. Remember, like remember how you're going to feel after you've finished this whole tub of ice cream and then choose. So yeah. stop yourself, challenge yourself, then make the choice. Yeah. But if we just, because we we mindfully like go through our day making a ton of choices yeah. and we're on autopilot mm-hmm. and we don't challenge ourselves anymore. Yeah. So when we're trying to create these new habits, we really do have to stop. Mm-hmm. And that's the part of the brain, right? Yeah. That that we have to retrain. Yep. So. Absolutely. And I think... Um, in the video I sent you, the Dr. Huberman video, he's talking about kind of the the plain, the pain and pleasure balance. Mm. And he's talking a little bit about that. Um, what does he call it? I think he calls it um, like work and purge or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I can relate to that where I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this done and then I'm going to re- reward myself with this. Yeah. And then it gets to this point where you're like expecting... A, a dopamine reward for when you do hard work and that can kind of set you up in this bad pattern, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, I, I really think that, you know, some of this understanding specifically about dopamine can really change the way we look at some of this stuff. And, and in that video, uh, Dr. Huberman, who's a neuroscientist who runs his own lab 
Um, he's a Stanford neuroscientist. He has a wonderful podcast and he's trying to do stuff like this. Like he's trying to give more information to the public about science, about nutrition, about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's done a lot of dopamine research and yeah, he was saying that this is one of the most important findings in the last few years in neuroscience, Mm -hmm. the, the discoveries related to dopamine And basically dopamine is um, a molecule that's secreted in the brain and it's essentially what makes us go. It's the jet propulsion engine that moves us forward. It makes us pursue, build things, create things. Mm -hmm. It's also what we use to kind of take stock of our lives um, in both the short and long term. So if your dopamine's really low, you might be that person sitting on the couch with four empty tubs of ice cream. Mm -hmm. When your dopamine's really high, you're kind of out there charging around and and getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. And long story short, without getting too much into the science side of things, his kind of sort of thesis or conclusion from all this stuff is that attaching dopamine to reward is a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. So that if we just expect, if we're in it just for the win or just for crossing the finish line, it is structurally and fundamentally from the start not going to be as successful as if we can enjoy the process Mm -hmm. and be invested in the process. Mm -hmm. And I guess that really resonated with me a lot because I've had that too. Like, you know, I spend time in the mountains and and something I've noticed is like you spend all day, you know, you might get up at two in the morning, you're kind of, you're suffering. There's all these questions. There's like this, you know, typically a small level of stress. And then when you get to the top, it's like, no one really knows what to do. You know, there's almost this moment, like, mm-hmm. and I've had this with other big things in my life where you like finally achieve the thing that you mm-hmm. wanted to achieve. And then you just, there's now almost what? like, yeah, totally. There's like this hollow feeling. Mm-hmm. And that was just such a big, to me, that science makes a lot of sense. And I feel it in my body of like, mm-hmm. you can't, it's, it's the journey, not the destination. Exactly. Yep. And he talks about, you know, just sitting with it for a while. You know, not like an overexcitement of it, of that adre- adrenaline where, you know, now you're just overwhelmed and, and you can't do anything, but just sitting with it till that, that tipping point again, you know, levels out. And then it was kind of like what I was talking about earlier with that structural tension. Okay, now what's next? Totally. What's next? What can I work on to continue on this path of my, you know, healthy journey maybe, but not that there's any destination. There's no, okay, I've arrived. Totally. Because my my life is still going. It's never done. Never done. Yeah. I thought that was funny. He called it postpartum depression. There, <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, you know, you do this big thing and then it's like the now what? Yeah. And I think there's there's just a lot that we can take away from that. Yeah. You know, and I I would be curious to get your perspective a little bit on... Let me think about how to phrase this. You know, something you were talking about was this idea of like each day is composed of choices and you're making a lot of choices, big and small, Mm -hmm. um, that ultimately influence the contours of your life. And one thing I'm curious about is this idea of like free choice versus maybe what's in your DNA or Mm. in your brain chemistry and where to draw that line. Mm. Cause I think that's something I kind of grapple with where it's like, 
you know, and we talk about this in trauma informed care too, of like not being non punitive, being non judgmental. Mm-hmm. But at what point is what someone doing? Are their actions their choice or is it something more that has to do with the way their brain is wired or maybe Mm -hmm. past traumas in their life, maybe a Mm -hmm. high A score or something like that? Do you have any thoughts on that, like personal responsibility versus maybe like your brain chemistry and Mm. historical trauma and lived trauma? Well, yeah, because I was mentioning this at the beginning of the interview about the clay that people throw on us. Mm. And so that has a lot to do with the different traumas that are also happening, but not happening to us. But later in life, I realized was happening for me and really molding me into who I was becoming if I allowed it. And Mm. if you allow it to flip in your head and think, why is this happening for me instead of why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. You're you're not playing the victim anymore, right? Now yeah. you're trying to figure out why is my life being challenged in this way? And I'll tell clients, and, and I, I heard this from someone else, I think it was a therapist, you know, that when you think of your heartbeat and you see it on a monitor and there's lots of ups and or it yeah. goes ups and down like this, and that tells you that you're alive. Well, when it's a straight line, that means you are dead. So if our lines were just going perfectly along, right? Um, it's a pretty boring No life. ups and downs. Yeah. yeah. That means we're dead. Yeah. But the ups and downs on that monitor mean that we are living. And so that it's okay, you know, to have those. But that, yes, that the, the trauma the, that we go through, again, it's a choice, right? I could choose to let this affect me and continue mm. to affect me. Yeah. And and continue for this uh, trauma to be a cycle in my life, in my kids' life, in my mm. grandkids' life and so forth. Right. Yeah. Or I could choose to end it mm. and make a change or slowly, like I said, take some of this clay off. Like I realized some of these habits just even as a parent. Yeah. You know, in some of the ways maybe my mom parented us, mm-hmm. but now I have a partner. You know, I yeah. have a husband yeah. that my mom didn't have that the majority yeah. of her life, the, where she had to work together with someone else in their opinion on it. Yeah. But also, what did I want to do differently? Yeah. And so I had to recognize these patterns or these things that were happening. Yeah. You know, and yeah, some of them maybe. Um, <sighs> Some of the trauma actually in my life was the other, you know, the other parent at one point that my mom had yeah. a, a husband. And I realized from from that that there were things that I didn't want to do. Totally. You know, yeah. for example, I wanted to make sure I was uh, married before I had kids. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I had, you know, a partner that was going to be mm-hmm. committed to, to me and, and to having a family and staying together. Yeah. Um, but also again, with that parenting is like maybe checking myself when I would get overwhelmed instead of yelling, mm, you know, totally. um, or, you know, rushing the kids and, and blaming them that were late instead flipping it and saying, no, me and me and my husband are responsible and we have to change some things. So it's really about taking responsibility of your own life and your own actions, not other people and what happened to you. Yeah. So it's about what are you going to do now? Totally. And not wish for things to change. Yeah. But make actionable words saying, I will do this. Mm -hmm. I will become this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, congrats on like, that seems like the theme is like breaking these cycles for you and just 
I just want to say it's just like <laughs> it's really impressive and really cool to hear about. And yeah, you know, I I think I'm I'm I think about trauma a lot, and I think about it in a few different ways. And I think the one part of what you said that I might push back on a little bit is like the idea that you control how you react to trauma, because mm-hmm. in some ways, like I do think we have control over some of the narrative Mm -hmm. and that's really important. And that's actually a big part of a lot of therapies and healing from trauma Mm -hmm. is um, assigning a new narrative. Like you said, like a a big tenet of trauma is people tend to blame themselves even Mm -hmm. when they're the victim and people tend to get stuck. And that other part of trauma that I'm thinking about is like, we have these very old mechanisms in our brains and bodies that are a trauma response mm-hmm. that are from a very different time. And yeah. in a lot of ways, we can't control the way, like at least our bodies react to trauma or like yes. the psychological side effects of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's an interesting one to me too, is that um, different humans respond really differently to trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that makes it really difficult to study is like some people can go through you know, really rough conditions and come out the other side, mm-hmm. you know, in amazing shape. And other people will actually have relatively low adversity, but certain things will just um, really initiate that trauma response. So mm-hmm. that's such an interesting one for me to try and pick apart is like the idea of like, what is, what's within your power or what's something that mm-hmm. um, just is your body or brain's response to what mm-hmm. you've been through in your life. Yeah. You know, and um, I would like to get into some brain stuff a little bit more. And I think that kind of transitions into something I was really hoping to talk about um, with the brain. And I wanted to see if we could relate it back to like some of your coaching stuff. Okay. And I'm just going to talk about the brain for a second because I had a lot of fun researching this and just I want to provide this for our listeners. But I think the brain is really fascinating. And one of the really interesting things about the brain is in childhood development, it's built in a way where it starts with your most simple functioning and then gets to your most complex functioning. So it starts by your brainstem and then it goes all the way up to um, sort of your outer brain or your rational brain. And it's also interesting that that's the way trauma works and impacts the brain, specifically childhood trauma, is a lot of times it will make it so you are stuck in some of those lower level functions of your brain. So again, your most primitive brain, your reptilian brain is basically all about instincts. And then your midbrain or your limbic brain is all about emotions. And then your outer brain or cortex is all about thoughts. So it goes from like knee jerk reactions all the way up to like your highest level functioning, which is like, you know, sensory information processing, you know, um, the outer brain is stuff like critical thinking, learning and judgment. So when we talk about trauma work, there's two basic ways we can approach it. And one of them is working bottom up. So starting with your reptilian brain and then going up to your response. And that's what we were talking about before with like kids who are severely traumatized when they're young, their survival instinct has been tripped and they might be in fight or flight mode. So they're all focused on their reptilian brain functions and they can't learn the same way other kids can because they're like, hey, when's my next meal coming? You know, where am I going to sleep tonight? What's going to happen when I get home? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. 
Um, so a lot of times this stuff starts early and snowballs and uh, that, that learning difference and that difference in brain anatomy is, is really critical. So I find it interesting that, um, you know, your brain from the bottom up gets impacted by trauma. And then one of the ways to heal trauma is just reversing that and going top down. And this ties into what you were saying about trauma and narratives before. So if your outer brain, that's where all those high-level functions are. That's where stuff like your language centers are stored, your learning and judgment, your critical thinking, all that's occurring in our outer brain, which develops last when we're growing up. Um, it's maybe what you start developing around, you know, 8 to 10 years old. So that's what all these therapists and neuroscientists have come to realize is that that is one of the best ways to treat trauma is to use your outer brain to address what's going on in your inner reptilian brain, which mm -hmm. is where a lot of the trauma response is stored. Mm -hmm. So assigning a new narrative can be really powerful, yeah. like you said. And this gets into some weird territory because I don't want to like pretend like I'm advocating for trauma or saying it's a positive thing, mm -hmm. but I do think there is this positive side to trauma like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And if you can change that story mm -hmm. um, within yourself of like, this yeah. isn't something that's my fault. Mm -hmm. And if you can also realize all the powerful adaptations you had to get through it, the strength it took to be a survivor, stuff like that, I think there's some really powerful changes that can be made. And Something I was thinking about more is this idea of uh, post-traumatic growth and how healing from trauma has actually probably created some of the most incredible like works of art and dance and mm. athletes. Mm -hmm. And there's all this, this beautiful stuff that can come out of the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking a lot about that, about like, you know, some of my favorite music in the world is, is music that's born out of this struggle, you know, yeah. and some of, like some of the best art, all these things yeah. that, um, you know, are, are sort of the product of trauma. So, yeah, sorry, there's a lot in there, but just yeah. kind of curious if you had thoughts about, um, you know, is there a potential upside of trauma, mm -hmm. how trauma can limit our brain from being able to access those things like compassion and um, judgment and stuff like that and, and how that might show up in, in your life as you've seen mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I think we can rewrite our story, you know, and we get to write the next chapter, you know, whether that's starting today you know, that we're in control. And yes, those things may have happened to us, but there's also those things in our life, like you're saying, that beautiful things that come out of it because of the trauma that uplift us and who really make us into who we are, whether it's teachers, whether it's coaches in our life, whether it's the sports, the music, the art, those are the things that get us through the trauma. And, and really help now elevate us into what we need. Um, I, I like to call that, like, that's what's making me strong. All mm -hmm. these different things in my life that I, you know, different mentors or, or things, that's what helped keep me going. Like, for example, when I struggled in school, it was the sports. Yep. I wanted to play sports, so that kept me just above enough, like yeah. sea level, to, <laughs> to keep playing sports. That was my motivator, right? To go to college, 
it was those counselors or those teachers who were there to support me yep. and to help push me. Um, you know, so even though there's the trauma, if yeah. you could find that thing or those things mm-hmm. that are going to help, you know, pull you up out of that fight or flight yeah. and really switching the brain and training the brain. Yeah. A lot of it is about that, too, is just really training yourself that I'm okay. Yeah. Little Meryl, who may have had some trauma, yeah. Big Meryl now has the tools yeah. to help her, yeah. and she's okay. Yeah. She doesn't need to worry like she used to. Yeah. She doesn't need to be in fight or flight. She knows how to breathe through this and that this too shall pass, like I said yeah. earlier. And that's the thing, though, is is a lot of times, because we are trained that way, yeah. To and, and it's there to protect us. It was there thousands of years ago to protect yep. us to to run away from danger, but we still have it. But now we have to learn those tools to say, "Hey, no, you're okay." You yeah. know, it, 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 and it happens in an instant, right? Like totally. we could be in a meeting and someone says something that emotionally triggers us. Yeah. But. Again, we have control over that. They don't have control over mm-hmm. you and your emotions, but yeah. you have to start to train your body and your brain to get control again. And sometimes that's just taking a deep breath, having water by you because the water helps bring oxygen to your brain to, to calm your, your blood yeah. um, and to, again, remind yourself that you're, you are safe yeah. and you're okay. And it, sometimes it's just saying that in your own head. Yeah. But these are things, if we don't have the tools to get through it, we stay in that trauma Mm. and we stay in that hurt, in that victimization. Or also, I think because we went through some of those things, sometimes we hero, uh, like Mm. we call it hero coaching Mm. others, you know, so when I bring on a new client, I want to give them all the things but they have to learn some of it on their own or go find yeah. it out for themselves. Yeah. And I could help direct them a little bit. But if I'm, I'm um, hovering over them, just like, a, you know, you can hear of moms who are the, those hover moms. Yeah. If I do too much, then my child's never going to learn to be on their own yep. and to do these things by themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar with, with, uh, with trauma, mm. yeah. right? We have yeah. to grow through it. Totally. Wow. Yeah. I feel like, you keep having these responses and then I think of like five <laughs> things I want to address. In them. Um, yeah. I mean, A, I would say it sounds like you had really amazing um, community supports and protective factors mm-hmm. and those really helped you get through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like that was, was really critical to your success. And it's, it's so cool now that like you can be that person to other people and, and that full circle aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And, and something you said, I guess this is B for me, is um, just like ways we can leverage our understanding of neuroscience in these really simple and practical ways. I'm really interested in that. Like you said, mm-hmm. like even stuff that, it, and it almost sounds like, I feel like sometimes when I talk to people about this stuff, it almost sounds like demeaning, but it's not of mm-hmm. like, deep breaths and drinking lots of water and getting enough sleep. Like Mm -hmm. these things that are seemingly small, but are actually really, really critical Critical. to overall wellness and mental health. And yeah. Yeah. So I I think that's really interesting. And and I guess see one of the things I thought of um, when you were like having big Meryl talking to little Meryl, (laughs) um, that's so real. And that's, that's like one of the, that's like a facet of trauma is like, 
you know, and, and to just disclosure, like I've been going to therapy and I think there's a, like a part of me that's stuck mm-hmm. it, like being 18 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there's like a lot of people who have experienced traumatic events might even be have this part of them that is like frozen or locked mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily like the word resolve trauma because I think that just implies that you like cross the finish line. <laughs> it's done and you never have to think about it yeah. anymore. But until you kind of work on some of that stuff, there's going to be um, um, that part of you that's that's stuck there. And yes. I think that's one of the ways this science can be really powerful is like for me, I feel these feelings but then I can be like, oh, this is just my brain doing this, or yeah. this is my trauma response acting yeah. in X, Y, or Z way. And it needs to. Or I've been on social media for the last 20 minutes because my dopamine is low and I need to go outside and take a walk without my phone. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, stuff like that, the, mm-hmm. the big things, the little things that add up to big things. Yeah. And I think some of it sounds like ridiculous to people. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh yeah, just breathe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, they take yeah. a deep breath and it's actually the opposite. You know, you, you take mm-hmm. a slower breath. I didn't even know how to breathe properly. Yeah. I really did not. And I went to a physical therapist and, you know, you think totally. you go to a physical therapist, they're going to teach you some stretching and things like that. But mm-hmm. he taught me how to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so, totally. um, yeah, I think with native people sometimes because it's not normal mm, to yeah. use some of these practices, yeah. uh, that it sounds absolutely ridiculous or, oh, I'm not going to do that. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and one thing that I, I realized as I was growing up and struggling with the educational part mm. is I didn't want to be known as, you know, kids don't want to be known as the, um, the stupid kid. Yeah. So they would rather be known as the bad kid is what I was going to say. Oh, for or sure. Or girls, they'll maybe make up reasons that they're feeling sick so they don't have to go to school. So, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. but <laughs> No, it's great. But I definitely think that, you know, it's really about like retraining what we think. Mm-hmm. And not worrying about what others think, yeah. um, because if these are tools that are gonna they, that are scientifically proven to help mm-hmm. us, right? Like even goals, like you're more likely to achieve them if you write them out. Yeah, you know. I've heard you're more likely to go to the gym if you even just change into your gym clothes. Yeah, have them have those yeah. shoes right by the bed, so when you wake up, that's the first thing you do. Or, yeah, it's so funny. It's these little things. Um, and I'm of the opinion that all human beings, myself included, are probably chronically dehydrated. And that's <laughs> like, it's literally, I mean, it's changing the cellular structure of your body. It changes your mood. Mm. Um, and even stuff that, you know, they've done these studies on, uh, I think they were calling it teroception, which is basically they were just using a fancy scientific word for meditation, mm. but they were getting... Uh, people to meditate for 17 minutes and even just like a 17 minute stretch was significantly altering their mood, was changing um, the chemicals and molecules that were secreted in their brain for the better, you know, and it's, it's these little things and just wondering if you have ideas about how you might be able to like help more people just even do those little investments in their health. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, to remember that it's a practice (laughs) and, uh, to find again, those tools, I downloaded an app called calm 
Now, um, that was helpful for me when trying to learn how to practice meditation, for example. And they, you know, the app has meditations on there, but I also use the story time for my kids to calm them down in the evening time. Um, So I would say starting with little things like that, you know, pick something up that's going to help you. So um, I I truly am a believer in meditation now as well. And um, if you haven't, I think self-development's huge too. So I was thinking like, you know, I'm not a a physical reader like the the book, which lots of people are. I uh, listen to a lot of audible books. Um, I've been listening to Think Like a Monk, which he talks about meditation. And this is someone who went off and wanted to become a monk, but ended up leaving. Um, But, you know, it's really about constantly developing yourself. Mm. You know, like I said, that this is a journey. So what's next? How can I better myself a little bit more? How can I better my relationships? Mm. And and you mentioned it earlier, like in all aspects of our life, like not just around healthy eating, but do how do I get in healthy motion now? How do I get in healthy sleep? How do I get in healthy hydration? Yeah, because I remember waking up when I was unhealthy. I remember waking up feeling unrested, oh, even yeah. though I got like 10 hours of sleep. Right. And we can continue to just sleep and sleep and sleep, some people, because we never feel rested. And you're exhausted. Yeah. All day. And then you go to fall asleep and you can't fall asleep. Yeah. Because your mind is still racing, right? With all these things that you have to do or all the things you're stressing about. And that used to be me. Totally. And and one of the tools there, I would say, is write it down. Again, yeah. write it down. Don't sit there and think about all those things, but go write it down in a journal and then say, okay, I'm going to put that away and I'm going to get to it tomorrow. Even writing down yeah. tasks yeah. before you go to bed. Like, these are the things I got to accomplish tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then you leave it there mm-hmm. and you go to bed. But I remember there were times when I really couldn't focus and go to sleep. And mm-hmm. I would put on the calm app and yeah. do a meditation before I would go to sleep. And mm. that helped to calm my mind again, get all those, those and when you practice eliminating yeah. those things and those thoughts, right? Um, sometimes for as a mom, it's just maybe I'm going to sit in the car a few minutes before <laughs> I go into the house and before I have to tackle the, chi- you know, not tackle the children, but handle the what's to come, you know, as soon as I walk in that door. And so sometimes it's taking those breaths in the car by myself for a few extra minutes yeah. before I go in yeah. and now switch from work mode to mom mode mm-hmm. and show up again as a better, as the best mom as I, I can and yeah. leave whatever stressors and work-related stuff that just happened today in mm. the car. Yeah. <laughs> That's my transition. <laughs> so Sometimes just can scream a little bit in there. No one can hear you. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, for real. Yeah. Or, you know, calling a friend. Connection is a huge thing. So yes. if, if you're not yeah. willing and able to go and talk to a therapist, sometimes it's just having a friend who's willing to be that for you and yeah. listen, because we really do need that. Um, it's a huge part of our mental health. Totally. And that's evidence-based as well. And, and I'm a believer that therapy doesn't necessarily need to be in that traditional mold of mm-hmm. like, you know, someone on a couch asking you questions about your mom and, and scribbling answers down. You know, I think yeah. there's there's a lot of things that provide therapeutic value. And like we were talking about narrative-based therapy going top down, saying, I'm going to use my higher self, my higher brain to change the way 
I think about this event, Mm -hmm. that trickles all the way down into your body. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a multiple means of achieving that. I don't think therapy is the only one. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but just to go back to something you said, I think, um, you know, we're sort of on this topic right now of like, what are little science-based interventions you can do to improve your wellness every Mm day that aren't that expensive, they aren't that hard to do. And I just want to recapture some of those. And and one of the ones I was thinking about that you brought up was uh, sleep and sleep health. Mm -hmm. And I've been looking into this a lot more like sleep hygiene. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, But just there's all this research out there that when you sleep more, you're actually less likely to eat unhealthy foods. Hmm. Um, You are in a place where you can actually learn better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's obvious effects on your mood. I mean, I yeah. see that every day, oh, you yeah. know? So there's all these effects that if you can get in that, that sleep rhythm, it's, it's really going to have a positive impact on your life. And there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, I think a big part of it, like we were talking about is exercise. We're mm-hmm. actually more tired when it's time to go to bed. Yeah. Um, the screens is another one that's, that's mm-hmm. proven to be really big. Totally Trying turning to be, that off before you go to sleep, like sure. probably hour before for sure. disconnect. Even. Yeah, that's huge. And then um, consistency in your sleep routine is another thing that mm-hmm. I've heard is big. Like, yeah. I don't think that's like this side of the bed or that side of the bed, but more like, you know, around this time and yeah. Stuff like that. And sometimes we need cues. Yeah. You know, so setting an alarm in your phone that says go to bed Mm. or start winding down. And it's just a little cue or reminder. Mm -hmm. And that's what I used even for training myself to eat more frequently. Mm. Because eating more frequently also um, helps give you that that energy you need. Yeah. Um, But also it's training your body, you know, that you're not starving. And going back to the water, our body's made up of a lot of water. And most of us aren't getting it. It's the same stimulus that tells us that we're hungry that also tells us we're dehydrated. So a lot of times people confuse it. And so they go and eat versus drinking water yeah. because they're dehydrated. I think that's a great pro tip. And and sometimes I, I slack on this one, but like <laughs> drinking a full glass of water before I eat. Yes. It makes me feel more full. full. It makes me slow down a little bit. And mm-hmm. I definitely do the thing where I'll just like wolf it down sometimes. And I don't yeah. think my body's had the time to process that I'm full yet. Yes, because we eat too fast. Yeah, me. totally. <laughs> and maybe this is leftover from just being like a teenage boy, but like I don't, now that I'm older, I don't need to eat to the point of feeling like... Mine's coming from a big <laughs> family. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, you had to get yours. Yeah. You got to eat quick yeah, if you... Totally. You know. If you want seconds, yep. you better be quick with it. Yeah, so <laughs> just, just to recap, um, Coach Merrill's... Simple yet effective health tips. We have uh, invest in a journal and write goals down. Yes. We have experiment with things like meditation and breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to the Calm app. Use code Coach Merrill for 20 <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not true. They, they do not sponsor us. I want to make that clear. Um, number three would be hydration. Yes. Number four, um, even small amounts of exercise. Mm-hmm. What else do we have? We have like screen break time. Yeah. Cues. So setting certain alarms to help you remember any of those things. Routine. Yeah. You could set even a screensaver that says breathe, you know, like before you go into the office or a meeting, before you even open up your phone to see what emails are there Mm -hmm. or what social media is about to bring, what type of negativity could come into your world, you see that on your screensaver to breathe and practice that first, 
then you you could pretty much go ahead and manage whatever's about to be thrown at you. <laughs> no doubt. And, and I've heard that too, is the first hour of the day is really critical. It is. In terms of like setting up yourself and, and your mindset and your body for the day. Mm-hmm. And I know I was in a little phase there where I would wake up and uh, like put on a news podcast first thing in the day. Mm. And this was like during the height of COVID mm, no. and all this other <laughs> stuff going on. And it was like, yeah. I was just like starting my day with all this doom and gloom. And it yeah. was so heavy. And it, I realized it was just really not a good formula for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing I'm, I'm trying to work on is like realizing those things that aren't serving me yeah. and trying to break that habit. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I'm using the word habit correctly anymore, but the idea that like we get so used to doing things and then it almost becomes hard to do them without each other. And and Mm. this concept was talked about in some of Dr. Huberman's dopamine work of like, you know, I've had times where I get used to doing my homework with the TV on or I Mm. get used to listening to music while I work out or something. Mm -hmm. And it gets to the point that I always need to have some kind of sensory stimulus or distraction and even just like the ability to break out of those little routines, I think is super healthy. And and that was something Dr. Human was talking about is this idea of like dopamine reward or dopamine fasting where you just change it up sometimes. Mm-hmm. So you don't get stuck in those habits mm-hmm. where you're doing the same thing over and over again. And then as we know with dopamine, your dopamine baseline will just lower yeah. while that's happening. So you yeah. just lose the pleasure in those things mm-hmm. as you continue to engage in them. So yeah, I guess that was a rant um, starting but, about how you start your day. But, but yeah. yeah, I mean, even if it's just noticing something in your yeah. day, because how often do we like you know, my husband asked me one time, hey, where is this? Something. I don't even remember what it is. Yeah. Let's just say it's the deodorant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I seen this this object or this thing day in and day out. But now it's not important to me anymore. And so, like, I know it's somewhere, but I'm not focusing on the things that I see every single yeah. day anymore that it almost becomes invisible. So, again, mm. that's training your your brain to start noticing the things I remember at points I would drive home and I don't even remember driving down the road. Yeah. Because we're so on autopilot. Yeah. We see the same things over and over again. Even sometimes when you are watching TV shows or everything is just so routine and feels like a merry-go-round. Yeah. You know, or what are they what's that movie where it's like Groundhog, this, Groundhog Day. Day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so we have to train our, our mind again to say, like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna pay attention to something new today. Even though yeah. if it's something that I've seen every single day, but I'm gonna purposely pay attention to, oh, okay, that plant is there. I'm gonna yeah. focus on that plant, you know, and now I see it. Yeah. It's there. How many leaves does it have? How, you know, how many yeah. branches to have the leaves fallen off, you know, rather than just like not even noticing it anymore. Yeah. So anyways, I think really training the brain sometimes is is super helpful to yeah. get out of that. One of the things I have clients who talk about, you know, brain fog yeah. and how that goes away when they do start mm. to eat better and hydrate better. Yeah. And so now we get to use that side of our brain again that we haven't been using because it's been so fogged up. Mm. And yeah, that's another um, kind of a hallmark of trauma where it's like the past isn't safe because the traumas of the past are essentially defining the past. Mm. 
And the future isn't safe because you're projecting. That's another classic symptom is you're projecting that trauma on the future. So you're mm. always afraid something's going to happen again. Yeah. And then the present is also challenging because you're dealing with all this anxiety about the past and the future and also traumas having all these effects on your body because mm-hmm. of the brain body link, like we talked about. So mm-hmm. but actually, that's, that's why you got to find people, though, who've who've gone through it. Right. And surround yeah. yourself with those people, not back with the same, you know, people who are doing these things or get your people on board with you yeah. to do it with you. Because, again, you're not going to change if those if you revert back to those old things and totally. surround yourself by those old things or people that totally. aren't helping you. And, yeah, I think that's one of the as you said before, it, it really emphasizes the need to be present. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's that's one of the ways we heal. Yeah. Um, so I had some more numbers I want to run by you. I was kind of geeking out on some stuff this morning. And uh, something I think about a lot with uh, neuroscience and human biology and trauma and fear response and sort of like the circuitry in our brain that deals with basically with problems is a really old system in our brains. And that... So much of the problem with stuff like trauma is created from having a body and a brain that was built for a really different period of time. Mm -hmm. And taking that body and brain into a modern setting, Mm -hmm. it's it's not very well adapted in a lot of ways. And, And trauma is one of the biggest examples of that. So I was, I was looking up some numbers. So basically the earliest human ancestors came onto the scene around 6 million years ago. And then the first homo sapiens with the really big brains, kind of like our um, direct, you know, evolutionary ancestors 200,000 years ago. So basically from 2000 years ago until the late 1700s, early 1800s, that's when the industrial revolution happened and everything changed, right? That's when we had factories, we had mass urbanization, we had people's diet change, we had, you know, access to different things and and we were able to get transportation on on steam engines and stuff like that. Like that's really when Mm -hmm. um, humans kind of jumped into the modern age. And it's, it's wild to me to think that like, you look at it and even if you just say, let's say 200,000 years ago, that means that since the industrial revolution, only 0.1105% of our time, we have had access to all of these things. Mm. All of these things, when you talk about, you know, fast food, social media, uh, modern transportation. So, it's, it's this fraction, 99.89% of human history and evolutionary history, um, our bodies and brains operated in such different settings and for such different purposes. You know, 99% of our history, we were not sitting behind computers and offices. Mm-hmm. We were out there looking for food, mm-hmm. um, yeah. making clothes, like do, doing all these other tasks. And the trauma response is, is really outdated technology in my mind. And <laughs> we see lots mm-hmm. of other examples of this too. You know, the body is programmed to eat salts, sugars, and fats. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that we have access to all these things that in the form of fast food and all these other commodities, 
it's it's really problematic. It is. So I just been thinking about that a lot. Um, sort of the evolution of of trauma response and and trauma response was fantastic for when you know, you are facing real danger. You would have a shot of adrenaline and cortisol. It would give you energy. Mm-hmm. It would make you hyper vigilant and focused. It might help you get away from an enemy or a large animal or something. So I, I, I'm just kind of fascinated by this concept. And I was wondering if you had any ideas about that. So, um, yes, years ago, we did not have the access to food. Now we have access to food at every corner, gas stations, fast food, you name it, grocery stores. Um, And it's not food that's good for us to give us the fuel that we need and the purpose of food, right? Now it's the satisfaction. And I hate when, um, and, and that's probably a strong word, but, you know, when people talk about, you know, traditional food. A lot of people are like, oh, well, we eat Indian tacos. No, we did not eat Indian tacos. If you think about our traditional foods and not just like my tribe here, but tribes all over, right? Yeah. Bison is probably like the best kind of meat you could yeah. eat. Gaming meat, yeah. right? Whether that's elk or deer, yeah. those are all way better protein, lean protein for us to have. And our body breaks it down better. Mm-hmm than the type of foods we have now, the, the you know, hamburgers and, and all that. Um, so if we go back to these traditional forms of food that we used to have to go and forage for, like you were talking about, right? Like that the food was just accessible. We had to go look for it. Yeah. But then we're not, we weren't, uh, is it called sedentary? We weren't just sitting all day. Yeah. So we were actually moving and mm-hmm. our bodies was, were, was, uh, you know, kind of working off what we ate too, you know, burning yeah. off those things. Now, you know, Americans consume a lot of calories now that I understand calories. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we consume so many calories, yeah. but we're not burning it off. We're mm-hmm. sitting, I sit over eight hours a day. Yeah. And I don't need that many calories because I'm not going to work that many up. And that's why now, for example, when I used to eat out for lunch every single day, go get fast food or, or, you know, and that would be the conversation me and my husband, where are we going to go eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? So ridiculous how much time is spent around food, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, then I'd come back to work and I was not feeling good and I was drained and my energy was gone. So then I take my three o'clock break. What do I do? Go to Starbucks, go to McDonald's and get a half cut sweet tea. I mean, I was living off of energy drinks, coffee, tea, you name it. I drank tea like it was water. And the way I drink water now is the way I was drinking tea. But again, the accessibility to these things that Mm. are really unhealthy for us, our bodies weren't made to have that. Because now they're manufactured in, uh, you know, these these places like you were talking about, but they're the food is an industry. It's yeah. made to make money. How oh, yeah. are they going to make money off of us? Is to keep us addicted to it. And once we realize that we're addicted to food, and it was funny because I hear you know this uh, what's it called um, Overeaters Anonymous group in yeah. town. Yeah. I think we all need it. Yeah. We're just not willing to admit it. Totally. And 
I sure in the heck needed it. And yeah. I still do need it sometimes because yeah. I have to check myself. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because the doctor who created our program, he says that check yourself before you wreck yeah. yourself. And that again is that stop, challenge, choose. Yeah. And and training our bodies and our minds to challenge ourselves a little bit and to yeah. remind ourselves that food is there to fuel our bodies yeah. and not to satisfy us. Yeah. The purpose is to give us fuel. Yep. So when we start thinking about food like that, but so many of us are so, again, addicted to food that everything like the holidays is around food, birthday parties around food, you know, celebrations are around food. And it's, what about the people? What about those connections? Mm -hmm. You know, it's also about that. It's not around the food. I'm not here to live for the food. You know, I'm here to live. Yeah. And once we start to make those shifts that, you know... Yeah. I don't need food to 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 you know revolve revolve around every decision or thought yeah. and thing you know that's controlling my life rather than giving yeah. me life. Yeah. Then maybe we could start living differently. My son for example uh, again cuz we create our habits young, right? Yeah. And this is why it was important for me to get healthy. So I didn't instill those same habits on my children. And mm. then when they get to my age where now my metabolism slowing down and they have to create new habits that I instilled into them or, you know, get rid of those old habits. Yeah. One thing for me, it was dessert every single night. Yep. You know, my totally. grandpa would be like, what are we having for dessert, you guys? So at a young age, I learned how to bake. Yeah. We would get ice cream or that was just the routine. Every night we had that. Well, what does my family still do? My mom and my uncle, you know, what's for dessert, guys? And I just realized that it doesn't need to be in everything every single night. And I tell one of my boys who's really addicted to wanting something like that every night is, you know, we don't need to have it every every night. Every once in a while, yeah, let's go do that. Let's go have some ice cream, you know, let it be a... What do you call it? Just a on occasion yeah. thing, you know. And that's another tip: is just don't bring it into the house. Yeah, they will start to oh, change man. too. It sounds like your son's getting some lessons in dopamine. <laughs> yeah. He is. For yeah, real. those and, Takis, and, uh, oh. <laughs> hot Cheetos. I mean, I was addicted to those things too. But now, oh, what it's yeah. really doing to children and how it's affecting their body. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's not enough, right? Yeah. Until it hits home, until it affects your family, will yeah. you make the change? Yeah. Sometimes it's like we have to be sick and tired of our situation or so bad of a situation to yeah. make the changes. And I think that's it's a scary a, thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think it's a lot harder to go the way you went than the other way, like to go from eating unhealthy to eating healthy. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you started healthy, yes. I think you know what that feels like in your body mm-hmm. and the contrast of like when you start eating junk, you're like, whoa, like you really notice it. I think especially as you get a little older mm-hmm. versus like if, if junk is what you know, then I think you, you might not have as much of a taste for like vegetables and, and things like that. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, that that sort of gets into what we were talking about earlier with the like eating good doesn't have to be doesn't have to taste terrible and no y- you know as you're saying like food is food used to be something that came from the earth and it was so recognizable like this is you know you knew what all the ingredients were on your plate or whatever and mm-hmm. and now it's food is made in a lab mm-hmm. and there's so many ingredients that you can't pronounce and, yeah. and colors that aren't natural and mm-hmm. weird weird ingredients in there and i think scientists and uh people who advertise and market food and and 
people in just this mega corporation food industry, they know yeah. about this evolutionary stuff we're talking about. And they know that people, people's bodies are programmed to act in a certain way. And I think scientists really play on that. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, not scientists. I think the food industry really play, preys upon that. Um, totally. And it's, it's wild. I, I, you know, I've really been interested in this topic, basically, that um, 99.8% of human existence, life was so different, and that our biology really hasn't caught up to the modern context. I've heard it called like an evolutionary hangover before, <laughs> or like, you know, it's like we're trying to go down the freeway on a tricycle or something. Like, it's just, there's all these examples of where this crops up. Mm-hmm. And... The food one and the self-control one, I think, is really interesting. And just living in this, like, instant relief culture of you get what you want now. Yeah. And when you don't, it's, um, you know, it's almost people, it's surprising for people who feel, like, a little bit entitled to that type of um, instant gratification culture, for I sure. I agree. But, you know, tribes, I think, that are trying to do things with, like, food sovereignty, um, you know, is great. But I think here locally, you know, sometimes those foods or vegetables that are being grown there are still foreign to me, you know, and I don't know how to use them. Totally. So, and that's someone who's, like, trying to eat differently or better. So when I did my garden at home, we chose to grow the things that I was now using And that I knew how to cook them, you know, like spaghetti squash and using that instead of regular spaghetti, Mm -hmm. zucchini instead of um, noodles, too. I'll make that into uh, zucchini. (laughs) Yeah, zoodles. (laughs) So it's really about, you know, finding these things that are going to help us stick and that where some of those other habits won't creep back in. But also that scarcity that happened during COVID, right, where we couldn't find the the certain vegetables or find the things that we're using used to having and and so learning how to grow them ourselves so absolutely i really like that and um just a little bit of shameless self-promotion um the next workshop tanya and i are running is going to be it's like a healthy cooking and nutrition workshop and we're going to get some really good local meat and then yeah deliver ingredients and do like a two hour it's going to be basically like a cooking class nice so and i think that's what we need though we need to learn how to cook the things because we're so used to cooking the old things that weren't healthy for us. Right. Like my mom wanting to revert back to like when the holidays came around and she was like, but we always do this. Yeah. Well, why don't we change that a little bit? You know, and if you slowly adapt these new things that we're going to now have now, that's the norm. So for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And change. It can, it's like you don't want to make waves, but change can be hard sometimes. And, and I respect everyone out there who's like trying to flex those muscles and, and work on, on building those changes in their life because it's not easy, but it can be a huge, huge step. And it's such a lonely uh, journey, but I, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has supported me on my health journey because it does keep and help me keep going. Uh, because sometimes, even though they may not be doing it with me, it yeah. still helps that they're supportive, yeah. you know, of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Any shout outs you want to give? That's, that is my shout out to That's anyone awesome. and everyone who yeah. continues to just say good job or, you know, uh, thank you for sharing, you know, because that helps me 
because I, I think there are people who are watching, you know, my journey because I live it out loud on social media, yeah, yeah. or at least I try to, yeah. That because that's how... That's how I got introduced to it yeah. was on social media. So if I could be that for someone else, but um, I think sometimes, again, we let our surroundings and people around us um, shame us. Yeah. And so I just want to say thank you to those who still, you know, support me, even if it's just a private message because they're too afraid to put it on, yeah. you know, a post on there to say, you know, I admire you for what you're doing or you know, so anyways. It's really great to hear a positive social media story. Totally. I like that. Um, I just had a couple more things I would like to hit before we close it out. Um, you know, I was just kind of curious. You know, we both said on this trauma-informed care task force at work, and, and, you know, the ACEs stuff has been a lot more in the conversation recently, and I was curious for you, like, what was your reaction when you first heard about this stuff? Because I think both ACEs and trauma-informed care, from my perspective, I think people actually know a lot about them just based on what they've been through in their life, mm -hmm. but maybe don't use as much like the technical terminology or the science or whatever. Yeah. But I think sometimes people are uncomfortable like um, with the, the labels part of it or something like that. But um, I was just wondering if you could speak to that like when you first heard of it, were there any connections you made or like aha moments you had? Oh yeah, definitely. There were definitely moments where I was just like, oh wow, that is actually me. Mm -hmm. Or like, wow, I didn't yeah. realize that those things that happened to me when I was younger ha that have shaped me into yeah. who I am as an adult now and like making those connections that like, well, maybe that's why school was harder for me. Yeah. Or maybe that's why I liked sports more or, you know, because yeah. I was trying to find that thing that was going to give me that support that I needed that maybe I wasn't having, you know, from at home because of the trauma, you know, and, and going through these different things or, and even that it's passed on, right. That like yeah. my mom's trauma by having an alcoholic dad yeah. was like a little piece that was like the epigenetics. That, yeah, yeah. That was passed on to me. Yeah. But that's why I, I think it's so important to like recognize these things now and mm. say like, nope, it stops here with me. Yeah. It stops in my bloodline, yeah. you know, and if we could each take a piece of that and try to stop mm -hmm. it or end it here, mm -hmm. then it will just continue to get better. Yeah. But if we continue down that other, the other side side of it, that cycle, right? Cause we could say, well, you know, family is six. Why did this person turn out this way? But this person turned out that way. Yeah. Cause it's about choice. Mm. It's about those things in their life that surrounded them that helped uplift them and change their life versus mm. going down that other path. Mm. But yeah, a lot of it has to do with choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And it, it's interesting, you know, and one of the things I really appreciate about you is you have a really positive take on all this stuff. And there, there's a lot of optimism. And, and I've been in this space a lot, and I think it can be easy to get bogged down in all the, the doom and gloom. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I really think I have been trying to embrace more of, the, like, the silver linings in this stuff. And, and we talked about it some on this, like, you know, the ways we can use science to change our lives in terms of our day-to-day -day practice, the way we can flip the narrative on these really challenging experiences in our mm -hmm. life. Um, but also just like, you know, something I get from you a lot is just like taking things in your own hands and mm -hmm. really, um, you know, 
making big, powerful changes and doing it for yourself, but also doing it for other people in the community. So. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is digging down really deep. And that's what I think ACEs shows is like, where's this coming from and why? Like, yeah. and really keep asking yourself why. Yeah. Why, why am I why am I reacting this way? Mm-hmm. And, and, and keep breaking it down until you get to that, that little thing way back there that you almost buried. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that needs to change. Yeah. Remember I was talking about the clay. Yeah. I ha- you have to go so far back sometimes. Yeah. So one example that I, I really liked someone shared with me once was because a lot of people could think what I'm, I'm doing as a health coach is mm. I'm selling people. I'm a salesperson, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of us have a bad narrative with salespeople, right? Because in and, and it's happening again with cell phones where we get all these spam calls or we get text messages saying, wanna drop five pounds, you know, or my warranty's <laughs> been up for the or last the warranty thing forever, years, yeah. right? So now we have this narrative in our head because maybe our parents were like, Oh, those damn salespeople, you know, they just yeah. keep calling. And now they look at someone like me who truly wants to just build a relationship and connect with someone mm-hmm. to help them change. But because of these other things and areas in our life, maybe way back when those yeah. first started, right, that narrative got put in my head that salespeople are bad, right? Yeah. Instead of that, they're just people too. And, and you know, thinking about uh, frontline workers or people who kept working through the pandemic and even still mm-hmm. in that a lot of industries are so short staffed and we treat these people horribly because the service isn't the same or that the cost yeah. of things are higher, right? Yeah. And it's like, this is going on in a lot of areas and it has nothing to do with the person that you're seeing, that frontline yeah. person. They're just, they're, they're showing up. They're doing yeah. their job. Tell them thank you. Yeah, they're so, not the one that deserves to get yelled at. Yeah, but I, I don't know where I was going with that or what you <laughs> yeah, yeah. asked, but uh, it just made me think of that. Well, something what you said brought up for me too, like... Um, Sort of challenging the the status quo or not accepting something just because it's the way it's been done mm-hmm. historically. And an example I really see of that is like work culture mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. here in the United States, where it's like it's more commendable or more acceptable to be someone who like hardly sees their kids mm-hmm. and is just you know working their hands to the bone all day yeah. than to be that person who. You know, like that's what's what's valued. And mm-hmm. we put a really, really high premium on that as opposed to, you know, like other, in my mind, values that are potentially much more important. You mm-hmm. know, like how you show up for your family, how you show up for your community, all the stuff that happens when you're not working. Yeah. That's so important. Totally. And yeah, I just, I wonder if there's ways to really change wellness in the workplace more and, and demonstrate that, you know, people aren't just a mechanism to achieve profits. People mm-hmm. are not not a resource. People are incredibly valuable and you mm-hmm. can't just just use them yeah. to think about bottom lines and profits. So. Well, I think y- you're absolutely right there. And once we start to look at wellness as, you know, overall wellness and all those areas we talked about and not just around exercise, because I think a lot of times when people think of wellness programs for their organization, they think exercise. Yeah. But we have so many people who are in different areas in their their yeah. lives that, you know, physically can't exercise sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and 
if they would just make these other changes, then eventually maybe they could get in some motion, but they're not in that point where their body can handle going in and doing CrossFit, for example, (laughs) because that's hard on their body and their joints when they're a hundred pounds overweight. And, you know, that's why for me, it was like, I kept hurting myself because I thought that was the the thing I needed to do was Mm. get back into exercising. And although that's part of it, right, there are safer ways to slow or or ease into exercise, even if it's just Mm. doing squats on the couch or doing pushups on the wall. Yeah. You know, baby steps. For sure. Not overdoing it. And but a lot of times when I've tried to make a change and it hasn't worked, it's because I try to do it too dramatic, too yeah. quick. Yeah. And it's just like, you yeah. know, like tomorrow I'm going to yeah. get up at four and meditate and run six miles. And it's like, yeah. no, it needs to be a little increment. But it, it could be just doing those small things like doing a crock pot challenge, you know, yeah. a healthy recipe yeah. instead of like, you know, walking, uh, you know, 35 miles, we're going to do a walk challenge, you know, because not everyone could do that. Totally. So really trying to be, um, if we're trying to change the wellness in the workplace, it's like reminding Mm. your staff, go take a break. Yeah. You know, just a mental break away from your office. You know, yes, for some, it might be go do a walk, but for others, it might be go take a coffee break. Just go change the scenery for a little bit and then come back. But many of us work through our day, work, 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 right? And now we're ineffective when it comes to the afternoon. So just wellness looks so different and you got to be open to how it looks. I don't know how many times I need to relearn that. Like it's the <laughs> afternoon, I'm in my dark little cubicle and I'm pulling my hair out and I'll just go get some buckets to shoot a couple hoops yeah. over there and it's, it's awesome. Like it changes my, yes. my mood around and I'm just going to leave this here, but also saying that like, there's a lot of research that says the four day work week and the six hour day <laughs> employees are more productive. So yeah, I don't know. I hope we move in that direction. <laughs> um, what, one last question and then I swear I'll shut it down. I think sometimes too, there's a stigma attached to all this stuff too, right? Like wellness. I think sometimes people can think of it as, um, something that's maybe a little woo-woo or like a little, you know, especially, you know, I see this amongst men, like, you know, something like therapy is something they have a lot of reservations about engaging mm-hmm. in. So what are some ways you think we might break down um, the, the stigma? Uh, what are what are some ways we might encourage people to do healthier practices and, and get away from preconceived notions about these things? God. That's a tough question. That's what I'm here for, uh, tough questions. That was the toughest one you throw at me all <laughs> right day. <at> <laughs> uh, gosh. Hmm. It's tough because, again, we, we worry too much about what other people um, in our surroundings are thinking about us, when in reality, sometimes they're not even thinking about us at all. And um, if they are reflecting something towards us, it's really a reflection on themselves Mm -hmm. and what they want to change or what they're not willing to change. But, um, God, the stigma, the stigma. um, That's what you asked, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I thought that was great. Oh, okay. I've I've heard that called the searchlight effect, too. Like, we mm. all think people are paying more attention to us than they actually are when they're actually focused on themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think if we just focus on our inner self again and what we want and start doing that, 
you may just go inspire someone else though. You truly would because you're showing them how to get out of that hole that they may have felt like they've been in. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like AA, for example, Mm -hmm. what helps them is other people who've gone through it. Because if you don't have someone who's gone through it, how are they really going to be able to help you? Totally. So I needed someone who was addicted to food (laughs) to help me out. And now at this point, I need someone who could show me how to add that motion back into my life again or surround myself by people like that, because that's the next step in my journey, you know, to strengthen my body again. But um, it's really just about breaking down what others think or what you think others are thinking about you and just to keep going keep finding, you know, something to, to reach for and to grow towards. Um, because if we don't, again, that, that to me, my, my life is boring and it's staying the same. And now I'm, and now yeah. I'm getting in that merry-go-round again, that same routine. But if you challenge yourself to keep growing and learning, I always like that, you know, learn something new every day, Yeah. then you're going to keep living. So couldn't agree more. And yeah, what you said about representation and role modeling, like you are that person. And I think that's super admirable. Um, I really appreciate all the work you're doing in the community. I really appreciate you sharing your story today. Um, Thanks so much for coming on. It was an honor. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) You got anything you want to plug at the end? Anything going on in language? (laughs) We always have something going on in language. And um yeah, I guess, you know, participate if you can in the language program, use the language in your home if you can. That is a dying language, you know, and any little bit that you could do, you don't have to be a fluent speaker, but, you know, come and join a class. Language, a second language for me is really hard, Mm -hmm. but um, I think, you know, whatever you can do, a little bit you can. Again, my children might carry that on a little bit further than I did, but that's okay as long as you're setting the example. Um, So whatever you can do, I would say, you know, join in on a class whether it's uh, listening to, to something in our language, um, you're helping it to survive. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, big shout out language department. You all are always doing amazing stuff. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you to OVCDC and ACES Aware for your continued support. Big shout out to Grayson Gorse for providing the original music you heard during the introduction. You can find his tracks wherever you get your music. Thank you to our amazing, talented guests who volunteer some of their precious free time to sit down for our conversation. If you'd like to reach out or have questions about the show, please email lwilson at ovcdc.com. Thank you for listening and happy healing. <laughs>